0: My name is Luke Kane and I am joined once more by my co-host Damian Heath. Hello, and Cameron Crothers. Hello, and you are listening to Celluloid Junkies. Celluloid
1: Junkies. We just want to go through our process for how we pick the movies for this podcast. We've done it the same way each month, but now we're going to do it on air. Basically, we have two of the three of us putting forward two movies each, and the third person picks which of those movies will be the subject of the next podcast. Before we go ahead with next month's options, I'd like to say that we may or may not continue picking movies this way. We will certainly be accepting requests from our listeners, so if you have a film you'd like us to cover, please contact us. We'd like to thank William Douglas for his suggestion of John Carpenter's The Fog, which we'd love to cover at some point in the future. So now it's Luke's turn to pick next month's podcast topic, and he'll be picking from four movies that Cameron and I have chosen. And they are James Foley's 1992 adaptation of David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 period drama Barry Lyndon, Peter Weir's 1993 drama Fearless, and Alan J. Pecula's 1974 political thriller The Parallax View.
0: I'm very excited. I'll have to think about it. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to decide by the end of the podcast. Last month we sustained Frostbite as we took a look back at John Carpenter's The Thing. And this month, we're bound to get more than a little waterlogged as we throw the spotlight onto Nicholas Rogue's 1973 genre bending occult horror drama, Don't Look Now.
2: I've seen your little girl, and she was laughing. Yes, my sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. Christine. John, do you hear what I say? It was Christine. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the grave. Yes. Christine is dead. Yes. She is dead. Yes. Dead, 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 dead. What is it, Mr. Baxter? What is it you fear? My wa- my wife was warned that, that I was in danger. Uh, what did she say? Uh, what did she say? Uh, uh, Please, fetch uh, him back. Let him not go. Fetch him! Fetch him! Fetch him! I hope it's not another murder.
0: For you. Based on the 1971 short story by Daphne de Maurier, the film features Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie as married couple John and Laura, who moved to Venice after the accidental death of their daughter Christine. Once there, Laura meets a psychic who claims to be able to see their daughter's apparition, an experience that is transformative for her, but which fills John with uneasiness. Meanwhile, a serial killer is stalking the streets of Venice and John begins to see visions of a figure in a red coat that may or may not be Christine's ghost. The film was a British-Italian co-production with a budget of $1.1 million. Production began in England in December of 1972, broke for Christmas, and resumed on location in Venice for seven more weeks in January of 1973. It was director Nick Rogue's third feature between Glastonbury Fair in 1972, a documentary he co-directed, and The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976. Released in 1973, Don't Look now performed moderately well at the box office and was well received by contemporary critics, but its reputation as a seminal work of horror cinema was clouded at the time by its unusual non-linear narrative and a controversial sex scene. In the years since, many directors including Danny Boyle, Steven Soderbergh and David Cronenberg have cited it as a key inspiration for their work. In 2000, the British Film Institute selected it as one of eight classic British films that had begun to deteriorate and it underwent a full restoration. In 2015, a pristine rendering of the film was released as part of the Criterion catalogue on Blu-ray and DVD. It stands as one of the most fascinating cinematic explorations of grief, marital togetherness, occultism, and death. Damien, if we don't look now, are we meant to look before or after?
1: (laughs) That's a really bizarre question, and I don't know how (laughs) to answer that.
0: Alright, well, what did you think of the movie? Well, we'll start with something a little more (laughs) comfortable
1: well it's a it's a great movie it's uh, really well realized it's easy to look at it now 40 years later um i think it probably would have been difficult to look at it especially in an american context when it was released when so many other things were happening mm. in cinema it's definitely got the european art cinema vibe going on as did a lot of his movies at the time nicholas rogue but it's it's a really great movie with great performances I think we'll go through so many of the uh, themes that are in it. It's very, very rich yeah. in things that you can discover about the movie, about Rogue's style. We can talk for hours on it, and we
3: probably will.
0: <laughs> I'm sure we will. Cameron, what did you think?
3: I was just really surprised that Donald Sutherland wore a wig.
0: I read that as well. I wonder Which if I thought, it's true. Because yeah, in
3: my head, like, he, in did my head he always had curly yeah. hair. So, like, because I tried to... Th- this is where most of my research went. It's on um, IMDb Trivia, and it's on a bunch of articles. Like, like it's a fact. Like, he wore a wig. Wow, okay. But I didn't understand it, because in Body Snatchers, he's got the curly hair and yeah. the perm. But then I've seen so many photos of him with straight hair. Yeah. So, oh, um, I, I don't even know what his hair is. Never would no, have no. thought it was a wig. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, that's
1: just how Donald Southern looked in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And
3: that's how I... That's what I assumed. And I was going to make a point of, like, how interesting it is to have, like, a, a curly-haired leading man be handsome and I couldn't imagine that happening today I know but it was a week so it was even more of a thing. thing Yeah, yeah. And, he's got, and it's even more of a thing, because he's like, no, I'm going to wear this wig. Anyway, sorry, that was a massive detour. Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add other than... But yeah, you love the movie. Love the film. Yeah. One of my favourite films.
0: It's a very tricky one, because there's it's such a dense film, and there's so much to potentially discuss, but we'll try to keep this, you know, under, I suppose, eight hours, because... Mm, that I would... think eight hours is good. Yeah, alright, yeah. let's aim for under eight. Alright, so, uh, look... Stick let's... with us! <laughs> We, uh, we begin on a wide shot uh, of a small lake on a rainy day. That's the first thing we see in the film for any title credits or anything. And I think it's uh, very interesting that the first thing we see is water and very appropriate because I guess it's used metaphorically. I read somewhere that it's used to represent the boundary between reality and unreality. Or you could just look at it as it represents, water represents how his daughter died.
1: And uh, a lot of this stuff with water, I think, was brought in because the rest of the story was always set, even the short story in Venice, which is famous for its canals. And yet this scene was not in the book originally. So they've shot this scene and they've put it on water. And there's so much water in this scene throughout, even the indoor sequences. Mm. And so they shot this scene to kind of tie it all in together with what was coming next in Venice. And obviously they changed the death of uh, the daughter of the Baxters.
0: Yes, in the short story, she died of meningitis. Mm, at the start of yeah, the story. Yeah, she's already passed mm. away. And also, when um, when Laura has to go back to Johnny's school, because he sustained an injury, I think in the book, he has appendicitis, but in this, he sustains a fall. What, right, a burn? Gets knocked on the head, doesn't he? Has uh, a big egg on his
3: head. Yeah, but I think the egg just wasn't done particularly well, so it looked like a burn because right. the when they speak, ab- when poorly. they yeah, when they speak about it later, it's like oh, it's just a bump on the head and blah. blah. I'm like, I thought he got burnt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I,
1: well, I thought he got burnt. I thought they were in fire practice or something yeah. originally. They, yeah, and so were. I thought he got burnt, but maybe he fell over and got a burning egg.
0: The makeup in that shot so overdone. It looks like he's got some sort of tumor coming out of his head. It's yeah. it's too much. <laughs> but anyway, we're skipping ahead. So all right. In the first of many jarring carts we're suddenly inside and the camera pans over a set of dark awnings, shutting out the rain. We then cut back outside. Christine is steering a wheelbarrow down a grassy field as the sun rises and a white horse dashes past her. And this is a really idyllic scene. Um, there's an imperfectly played piano medley through it. It sounds like a child's recital. And the white horse, I started to get kind of a bit crazy in my research for this film because I wanted to know everything seems to be there for a reason. So I looked up about the white horse and I read that in Christianity it's a symbol of death. So I think it's really interesting that the first time we really see Christine, mm. this white horse, the horse dashes past, and of course Christianity can't be separated from this film. There are constant references to Christianity and Catholicism through it. So anyway, okay, she's she's in this white field and she's holding this strange doll, which is wearing a glittery skirt and a gas mask. It looks like a military doll. It's a,
1: it is a an action man figurine. Yeah.
0: But the voice of the doll sounds like a hard-nosed British mum. And, yeah, I did
1: read that it was a woman's voice. So, very sure strange. i but that's
0: what I read. would they go to some perverted yeah. toy store for children to get this <laughs> doll? Action man patrol,
1: Open fast. It's a symbol of, of war and death, I guess.
0: And, I guess, transgenderism. And yeah, not, doesn't really feature in this film. Not
1: really, uh, although it did feature in the book. Does it bit. really? Well, just a little bit.
0: Did anyone read the short story I did? No, I read a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, though, because I love... I, I've read uh, several of de Maurier's books, and she's such a beautiful writer. We'll talk a bit more, a yeah, bit more about more her. Yeah, let's talk more
1: about her. I've got I've read so much about her. She's really interesting, and her dad was really interesting. I don't know if you read too much about him.
0: Uh, no, I didn't read too much about him. Daphne de Maurier was born in 1907. Uh, she wrote several books several great novels that were adapted into films, um, three of them by Alfred Hitchcock. She kind of became famous with her book Rebecca in 1938 when she was 31, and that's never been out of print since then. Her contemporaries were dismissive of her work. She was considered a romantic novelist. She wasn't taken very seriously. But um, let's talk about her relationship to Don't Look Now because this is really interesting. So apparently Venetian was her private word for lesbian.
1: Mm. And going to Venice.
0: Yeah, going to Venice meant that she was having a lesbian affair. Going to Cairo meant she was having a heterosexual affair. Her children strongly denied that she was a lesbian, but there's pretty much proof now there are that mm. is She had a great love affair with a... And think, if not a
1: lesbian, then obviously bisexual. Some kind of lesbian leanings. Yeah, mm.
0: at the very least by curious. But apparently she had um, a love affair with Gertrude Lawrence, who was, I think, an actress. Apparently one time when she was in Venice... Or or there's speculation that one time when she was in Venice, she mistook mistook a dwarf for a child, and that's where she got the inspiration for the ending of this film. The film is pretty faithful to the short story. There's very, very few alterations that they made. DeMoria wrote to Nicholas Rogue after its release to say how
2: much she admired the film. Shortly after Daphne DeMoria saw the film, she wrote to me and said, "Um, Dear Mr. Rogue, I've just seen your, your film of my story. And um, your John and Laura reminded me so much of, of a young couple I saw once in on Torcello, in, on an island, having, they were having a meal in a restaurant at lunchtime, and I thought they looked so much in love, a very uh, handsome couple, although s- there was something troubling them. She just liked the idea that I'd spotted something that, in actuality, she had spotted too in life. That's where her story began, by seeing a couple.
0: He lent that letter to a biographer and never got it back.
1: Yeah, well, apparently Maurier didn't like many of the adaptations of her movies, but she loved Rebecca and Don't Look Now. Nicholas Rogue said this in an interview with The Telegraph. After we'd finished the film, Daphne Maurier asked to see it. I remember the producer telling me not to come along to the screening because I'd changed so much. I said I hadn't changed it, I'd changed some details, but not the heart of the piece anyway. I didn't go along for some reason, then a week or so later I got a very
3: nice letter from du Maurier saying how much she'd enjoyed it. One of the significant things that I read that they changed was the reason for them going to Venice. It wasn't originally a church restorer or whatever. Yeah, building restorer. Which is interesting to me, because it's like, why would you go to a city surrounded in water when water is such a traumatic thing? Yeah. with regard to like the fact that he, there are so many churches in Venice and it is this like haven for his job like it makes a lot more sense that they would go there to me yeah
0: they probably needed a better reason because I, I mean if the daughter what, I going to remember what, the,
3: what was the reason in the short story did they just decide what? to move I can't remember I think but, yeah they
0: just go to get away from it yeah all. yeah But if you're going to have the daughter drown and then you're going to have those parents go to a city that is...
3: Surrounded in water. Yeah, you
0: need a pretty good, sensible reason to get them there. Yeah,
3: it provides so many narrative opportunities as well in terms of Things that happen in those churches, or all the, you know, all of that stuff yeah. all becomes a massive motif in the film. And um. even
0: though it's a minor change, like it's only one change, mm. it has huge ramifications for the rest of the story, for the rest of the film. Yeah,
3: for sure.
1: Well, I was surprised that the book was written in 1971. Yeah. Because you read about DeMore and you've obviously got Rebecca and Jamaica in, which were two big films in the 30s for Hitchcock. Mm. And so you think, oh, she's written in the 30s and the 40s, maybe the around that time, so I was surprised that it was so contemporary with the movie.
0: Yeah, her career had a long trajectory, and it's Mm. great that even at that age she was still writing stories that were this vivid and horrific.
1: She had a huge experience with the movies and with acting, though, and her father was a stage actor from 1895, and he began acting in movies in 1917 through until his death in 1934, and his most famous role was in the uh, first adaptation, the first stage adaptation of Peter Pan. And he played uh, George Darley and Captain Hook. And the families, the Du were families with the Llewellyn Davies boys, who were the inspirations for the Lost Boy characters in Peter Pan. Mm. And Daphne de sister Angela played Wendy later on stage. There's one film in which her father acted in, and it was in 1934, and it was called Ju Suss and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it was a 19, based on a 1925 book by Leon Fuchtwanger, and it was a condemnation of anti-Semitism based on the life of Joseph Oppenheimer. So that was 1934, and then six years later, the Nazis made a propaganda film that's thought to be a direct response to that film. It's based on the same man, and the movie has exactly the same name, but the German version is considered one of the most anti-Semitic films ever made. And there was a documentary that came out about that movie and why it was so anti-semitic and her father was involved in kind of the opposite of that but based on the same story
0: we'll go back to christine now so she's uh, hunched over a log bearing down over the lake in the background we see the baxter house which is a very traditional british country estate we watch her reflection in the water as she tries to retrieve the ball we're inside and her mother laura is reading while her husband john is checking out some projector slides of the inside of a church and it's interesting at this point we don't know why he's looking at the slides do you know, it hasn't yet set up that. Oh, he he restores churches. He's interested in buildings. That's his career. Mm. So it's another thing that sort of at that. initially it's what you don't know, and you kind of just have to, and slowly answers. And it's, to you.
3: and it's also something that you just would not see in a film. Either. No. <laughs> like you'd be beaten over the head with what they do. Or yeah. a scene of just pure exposition.
0: Yeah. And just, what they yeah. do would be far more generic, not something as obscure as looking yeah, at slides yeah. of an old church in some European yep.
3: country. He does seem to be
0: working at something. Yes. Yep.
1: So you can kind of infer that he has uh, some kind of relationship with that. In regards to his job.
0: Anyway, when John asks Laura what she's reading, she tells him she's trying to answer a question posed to her by their daughter, which is... "If The
2: world's round, why is a
0: frozen pond flat?
1: Um, Pretty silly question.
0: (laughs) I would think, well, it's probably not flat. It's It's not. Of course it's not (laughs) flat.
1: Like, I don't know what I'd do if I was living then and you couldn't just Google something. Yeah. she, She can't Google it. Thank God we're out of that out of that period. Yeah, she's really got to find out. You know, she's got to do a research I as know. to why a frozen pond isn't
3: flat, which clearly isn't. That would be even pretty difficult to Google. No, like these days, no. I feel like if you but if, if you write in a question, why is it? I mean, yeah, maybe actually. Yeah, Google's pretty amazing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You'd it actually looks for questions.
0: Yet. I love when you type a question to Google and it goes best answer. Oh, thank you. You know it's there. Just it's pop brilliant. it into Bing
3: and see what happens. <laughs>
0: Um, John looks deeper at one of the slides and notices a figure in a red hood seated in one of the pews. This is our first look at the red hooded figure. I
1: didn't even realise the first time I was watching it that that's what he was kind of double taking at. I was still Mm. looking at the window.
0: I thought it was really eerie that there Mm. was just this figure seated from behind wearing a red hood like a congregant Mm. at the church.
1: Very washed out photo though. It's difficult to see. You
3: really have to look at it but it kind of changes the whole thing if you see it if you don't see it i mean i guess we'll talk about this later but like the idea of him being like a precognition now it's probably the first instance in which you get privy to that information or like on, on, upon multiple viewings you can sort of realize <laughs> that that's what was going on the first yeah. couple of times i was just like oh that's creepy man do you think the
0: red hood figure really was in that slide i do i think yeah
3: now i don't know <laughs>
2: Thanks for, I, don't I would know. say i never, <laughs> never, I've never considered it now. not being yeah. there
0: well, it's it's a big coincidence if it really is there, physically there. Laura looks at the slide later, and the, our impression is that she's seeing it as well. Mm. But by then, she's looking at it after it's bled. Mm. That anyway, we're skipping back outside. We watch Christine's reflection run along the lake. She sets her foot down in a puddle of water. A moment later, her brother drives over a discarded sheet of mirrored glass, it's and he falls off of his bike. This is our first uh, mirror. Mm. Of many, many mirrors in this film.
1: Yep, mirrors and glass breaking. Mm.
0: And things like mirrors, ladders, uh, water, they're all very, very elemental. And they all kind of hark back to this idea of occultism. I don't know anything, or I didn't know anything about occultism before I started uh, researching this film. I know a little bit now. Christine is very often seen in water, in reflections of water. Mm. Johnny is never seen in a reflection.
1: Christine and later on the figure. That's are uh, right. often seen upside down in reflections that, of water. But
0: what that gives the audience when we see her in water is this feeling that she's almost ethereal, that there's something otherworldly yeah. about her.
1: Mm. The whole idea, I guess, behind this movie and the quote, nothing is what it seems, yeah. which I'm sure you came across. So I think the documentary on the Blu-ray is called Nothing is What It Seems. Well,
0: it's coming up in a minute. It's actually said in the film. Yeah. From inside, John looks up and it's as if he's heard the glass break under Johnny's wheel. So again, I guess starting to get those little hints that there's this, he has this precognitive gift. Uh, Laura finds the answer to Christine's question that a frozen pond does indeed curve, but too slightly for the human eye to pick up, giving the example of Lake Ontario. She tells this to John, and his reply is something that director Nick Rogue is fond of saying whenever he's asked about what this movie is about. John says, The thing is, what it seems. Outside, Johnny is checking his wheels and notices his sister by the lake. Christine is playing with the ball, drops it once more into the lake. And at this point, I'm thinking, oh, she's just determined to drown. <laughs> From inside, John knocks over his glass and spills liquid onto his white screen. He checks the slide, which contains the red hooded figure, and notices a red ink blotch issuing across the film. He looks up as if something has occurred to him. There's
1: right. two really good matching, match on action cuts there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is Christine throws the ball. And Donald Sutherland throws the cigarettes. Mm. That's right. And the second is the ball hits the water as John spills his glass. Oh shit. Oh. Just perfect perfect cuts.
0: I feel like we could almost spend the entire podcast talking about this opening scene of this film.
1: There's websites devoted to just this opening scene. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm.
0: It's one of the most memorable, extraordinary horror openings of any film I've seen. And
1: those those repeat themes, they add some kind of sense of urgency because we're watching essentially exactly the same thing
3: happening at the same time in two separate locations. It's interesting you talk about... Uh, all of the editing and the way that it's framed in the beginning the very first time I watched Don't Look Now when I, when I saw that blood stu- the ink or whatever it is start to like run off the slide before I even knew what was going on I felt a sense of danger and that's really interesting because it also took like harks back to the idea of what red means uh, Nick Rogue has been on record saying those kind of things of like yeah
2: when he talks about that painting one tiniest dot of red is an extraordinary thing once I was working on many years ago on um, a sequence when I I was photographing a sequence in a film. And there was a painting in this sequence done by quite a well-known artist of a woman sitting in a brown room, in a brown, everything was brown, but it was beautifully shaded in browns and dark browns, and her nipple was one scarlet dot, just in the frame of this picture. And when we came to shoot it, the art director, said, I think that's too much, and shaded it with a little beige. And i picture this bit.
3: The level of editing, it's one of those things for like film school geeks, which is, I'm guessing, many of our listeners. We hope the, so, anyway. But yeah, the power of editing. Like, the power of nonlinear editing in this film is. Is on on the screen straight away for you for me to be able to feel danger just a slight spilling of a drink.
0: Yeah, I feel like almost fifty percent of Rogue's strength as a filmmaker is how he collaborates with his editor to yeah. to to yeah bring these different ideas together in a cohesive way. But you've mentioned the color red. I just wanted to I did a bit of research because you can't ignore red in this film. It can mean just about anything to anyone in any culture mm. from courage, seduction, royalty. To danger, wrongdoing, violence. In China, it denotes good luck. It's an auspicious colour for brides in different countries throughout Asia and India. In Christianity, particularly in scripture, it is often used poetically to symbolise sin. But I think rogue kind of very, very quickly conditions the audience to associate the colour red with trauma because we have that mm. ink blood and then we have Christine in the
3: red mac
0: and we know something bad's going to happen to Christine the minute we see her
3: i think it's blood i think it's blood like i think that was the thing that we we know yeah. like as human beings we know that red is the color of blood so and blood never happens in a good
0: yeah way. the set designers he gave them very explicit instructions mm. that there was to be no red no red mm. except when yeah yeah so when we whenever we see red we always see it before something terrible happens mm-hmm. and it, it's something that we're nervous about because we're very conscious of the fact that, oh, there's red in the frame. Oh, now there's not red in the frame. We have John looking up as if something has occurred to him. Laura asks him what's wrong. He ignores the question, heads outside. And then we get this uh, really arresting shot of Christine slowly becoming submerged in the lake. Interesting that she's submerged as if she's fallen back rather than from. Do you know what I mean? So you you just see her face. You see her face go
3: under the water. It's so. Did anyone else feel like it was slightly Christ-like? Yeah. In, in the way that she dipped under it, like, and obviously there is that Christianity kind of thing. It may just be the fact that it was hard to keep her underwater, and we all know, and we know that that was the case from the story. Like they had to use three different girls. Yeah. In that, in and
0: apparently scene. she was perfectly good swimmer and did the rehearsals really well, but then because you had Sutherland's incredible performance, yeah. it terrified her and suddenly she couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And they also said I think it because it was out in the actual environment with all of the weeds and everything and she was fully clothed. So she it's almost like she kind of got too methody about it this like 8-year-old girl yeah, and started yeah. to panic thinking it was real.
1: Well, that's one of the things that she's fully clothed there's been some parallels made with and the fact that she drowns on her back and there's been parallels made with Ophelia's drowning in Hamlet who drowns fully clothed on her back. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to read about exactly the way that that was done. Yeah. I did read that the practice was done in a swimsuit, but yeah. then she put on the
3: coat. And so I don't, you and know, I think why the reeds we... as well in the pond that but they but the <coughs> fake reeds, I guess, because they did something of it in a the tank. I don't they know? did, yeah, yeah, and <coughs> the reeds hitting her face and stuff. And I guess like wearing, yeah, wearing clothes in water. is... Mm. It's very troubling, like yeah. it's so hard to do.
0: And when you're at that age, it would be frightening. having, And also, having a, an adult like Donald Sutherland yeah. suddenly lift you out of the water and this grief and screaming you know up at the sky.
3: I, how, did, how
0: did his yeah. wig stay on when it got wet? <laughs> if it was a week, <laughs> if It was a wig. <laughs> We should say that um, this was all filmed at the home of David Tree, an English stage and screen actor who plays the headmaster in the film. He hadn't done a film in 32 years. He'd retired from acting due to a war injury that took off his left hand. And this was the only film we came
1: back for. John
0: intercepts his son coming out of the house and races towards the lake where Christine's red and white ball bobs calmly on the surface. He dashes into the water. We then cut to Laura. That's when she notices the running ink on the slide John was inspecting. Then we cut back quickly to John, who has found his daughter's body. The blood thickens around the slide, and then we have these five incredible shots of Sutherland emerging from the water, holding his daughter. This powerful assembly of images.
3: Can we talk about his run to the pond? The smallest part in that sequence in terms of importance, but the way in which he runs... Something about it, it feels like he's such a child himself. Yeah. Like, it, like it's he's, graceless. He, it's completely graceless. He's, he looks like he's going to trip over at any moment. It looks like his legs are weighing him down. Well, he almost does yeah. at one point, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. It's and a totally uninhibited moment of, of performance. Would this film be your favourite Donald Sutherland performance? Or would it be... Uh, I mean, obviously it'd be up there. Because I think it is. What about Clue? I
0: feel like that's Jane Fonda's film more than yeah. his. I feel like this really is Sutherland's movie as much as it is Julie Christie's movie. This is
3: such a naturalistic... Role for him. like like I've never seen him be more personable in this film. Like, no, like
0: and there's no vanity in either one of their performances. There's no oh, "I'm an actor acting." Yeah. You just get the real feeling that he doesn't mind looking ugly, looking dopey. That run is almost goofy. Oh yeah, but it's because it's so. And he obviously doesn't have a problem
3: looking like goofy because he wanted to look. Yeah. Um, and, I
0: mean, the sex scene, I mean, how much more vulnerable...
3: Like, when he comes out of the water and he does this whale. Those five shots, from memory, are probably the most composed shots with in terms of cinematography. Like, mm. I mean, obviously it's also shot at a high frame rate, so it's obviously very slow, like, very slow motion and all that kind of thing, but the rest of the film is predominantly handheld. I think it's kind of just ballsy that, like, the shot of the girl getting drowned is the one that's in slow motion that's perfectly centred. Yeah. Then, like, I mean, they cut around, obviously.
0: I also think it's really interesting that... Those five shots are clearly different shots. You know, the way he's holding her, the angles, yeah. you can see that it's not um, yeah. all happening in the same moment. And I think that kind of speaks to the film and how it plays with with the idea of memory and time. You know, the idea that separate, maybe we're it was, watching it more as Sutherland's memory of how it happened. And you know how your memory distorts? Yeah. You know, you oh now he's holding her there, now he's holding her yeah. there. I liked the idea that maybe we were watching it more is the way Sutherland remembered that yeah. moment than actually the moment as it well, happened. Well, there
1: is a point later in the movie where he essentially sees the future,
0: yeah.
3: and so well, he sees the future throughout I mean, the whole movie. Plays with time. Yeah. It could but have also just been hard to get the coverage of the kid.
0: It could, but I mean, because of the film, because of the story, it works so well. It works. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They, it works fine. There's
1: over a hundred shots in <clears> this first sequence. Is that right? Yeah. That's really interesting. And it runs for seven minutes in over a hundred shots. I read that Different the DOP setups.
0: stood in the water in a wetsuit for six hours to get these shots. So, John lets out a raw cry as gloomy strings fill the soundscape. This is the first time we get to hear Denagio's really low, doomsdayish strings. body. He frantically performs CPR on the side of the lake. Realising he's lost her, he lets out a series of groans that are chilling. He stumbles and falls as he carries her towards the house. Uh, Laura appears, takes one look at him, and lets out a ghastly scream that echoes into the next shot, which is of a red drill piercing through a moss-covered brick wall. And we are very suddenly in Venice sometime later.
3: Great cut. Great cut. <clears throat> you not get a chance to really... You embellish on it in the slow motion of the death, and then boom, move into a, like you don't have any time to reflect on it. And it's yeah, there.
0: and Hitchcock is often um, cited as a key influence for this film and mm. that transition, but using the same sound, that's apparently taken from 39, 39 Steps. steps
1: yeah. 39 Steps, it's a scream and the sound of a train coming out of a tunnel.
0: We don't know how much, how much time has passed. I heard the DOP in one of the uh, interviews say that it was years. He mentioned that when we get to the sex scene, he said these people haven't made love in years. So I assume he meant they haven't made love in years because, yeah. But we're never really told. It's very rogue to not tell us how much time has passed.
3: <laughs> and who makes
0: love? I gotta say, the characters in this film make love. It's one of the only times that you get to see in a movie two people make love and not have sex.
3: Oh no, I reckon they're kind of fucking. I feel like it's fucking.
0: But yeah, but well, I mean, what, what's, what are you distinguishing between love and fucking? I feel like
3: this is turning too much about me now. It's um, getting a
0: bit... We're about to find something <laughs> no, out.
3: um... Oh, just the fact that the sex thing is like quiet.
1: We're not even there yet.
0: No, we have to save it. I'm, just, we'll I'm have very to save excited it. to talk about. it. <laughs> okay. John's obviously sitting with a, uh, standing with a laborer who's doing some work on a church that he's now been commissioned to restore in Venice. Uh, we linger on this shot as John presumably boards a boat and takes off. Can we just talk a little bit about the experience that the cast and crew had filming this in Venice in January of 1973? I heard very different things. I heard the DOP say it was hell. I heard Rogue say that it was a feast of riches. I heard Julie Christie say that she had a fantastic time in Venice and she still has images of beauty in her mind from that time. Do you think Julie Christie's attractive?
3: I think she's a babe in her time, yeah. She's, yeah. she And, like, formidable actress as well. Like, it's interesting that the, the different perspectives of mm. cast and crew.
0: Look, it would have probably been a logistical nightmare, but, my God, it pays off in the film. They
3: talk about how long it took to get gear... Like, you would have really. to plan your thing so well, like, to get your gear from one bit to the next bit, because you have to go by a boat, loading shit into a boat, getting shit out of it. But, like, they, they did it so run and gun from what you hear, the way that they just, like, picked off a shot here, picked off a shot there, the sun looks good there, and we'll do it like that. And I think they've done so well And they talk about the fact that they use the parts of Venice that aren't tourist hotspots and stuff. Yeah, they
0: do. They're mostly off the beaten track. Yeah, and it and does.
3: It's a, it's a really interesting depiction of Venice yeah I, I, feel, I mean like I mean I, I guess you don't really I haven't seen enough to...
0: well there's almost there's not many mainstream films that have been filmed in Venice but apparently the people of Venice weren't too happy with this film when it came out they... yeah
1: no it wouldn't be
0: <laughs> well I don't know I wanted to go yeah, well yeah. Want to go.
1: yeah we love death <laughs> so I, that's, I think most people don't <laughs> and on that note we'll <laughs> say goodbye <laughs> No, but we have some yeah. kind of strange fixation on watching death. This yeah. is the second movie in a row that's about a lot of deaths, yeah,
0: we're all a bit sadistic. Yeah.
3: There's not many films that don't feature a death
1: though. No. no well there's there's a lot yeah. you know we could be doing Notting Hill, yeah. In, on his podcast <laughs> yeah. instead. No, but
3: that's the death of cinema. Yeah. Anyway, we've Not got a all, that's a good as far as rom-coms go.
0: <laughs> we've got to drum forward, otherwise we're in, in danger of spending three hours on this opening sequence. John arrives at the restaurant uh, and finds Laura already seated and writing a letter to their son back in England. He spots two old ladies nearby who seem to be peering over at them. He says it's cold and closes a window, letting in a gust of wind from the front door that disturbs the two old ladies, who we later find out are Heather and Wendy. Wendy gets something in her eye. Uh, she and her friend retreat to the bathroom. thought it was really interesting that she sustains an eye injury. This film mm. seems to be obsessed with the idea of vision
3: versus seeing. Just a small thing. When he closed yeah, his window whatever, and in that air pocket, mm. pushed the other one. Yeah. I love the fact that he didn't say sorry. No. no. <laughs> what a cut. I'll sit there and I'm like... You- It was clearly your fault. Like, it was was clearly a ramification of you closing that window. There was no intent, though. You can still say sorry. (laughs) There was no intent if a person drives and hits a motor, you know, like a a pedestrian. You say sorry. But he's so
0: disturbed by them and by their interest in him that I think at that point he's not really got his wits about him to say, (laughs) oh, sorry.
3: Yeah, but it wasn't even just like a gust of wind. It was a gust of wind. Something happened to her eye and she had to walk off and he just stood there with his wig.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Okay, so can I just say there's a really touching moment here where John cautiously takes hold of Laura's hand and she responds by smiling in a vaguely pitying way. I thought, oh my goodness, this is so heartbreaking that John... Obviously, their, their marriage has been totally shattered by the death of their daughter, and she's sort of at a point where she's like, you know, I don't have anything left. I, I, I'm with you, but I don't have any love for you. I'm I, I, our happy married days are gone. Mm. He still wants it a bit. He wants to I, get it back.
3: Yeah, I don't know if I've read it quite as much as that. Like I read, it's very clear that they're not in a good place. But I don't know. I still, it might just be down to their chemistry on screen. But they, I always felt like they were okay. Like I always mm. felt like they were going to be okay. Like in terms of just their like, like just their relationship, not in terms of like plot or anything like that. But I just thought. There's a strength there. They know each yeah. other so well and it yeah. doesn't look like they're ever going to break.
0: Oh, I think they I think they love each other. I think they respect each other. I think that there's a beautiful marriage there. Mm. But grief is powerful. Mm. And I think they're both in danger of being separated from one another by their private experiences
2: with the grief of their daughter. Yeah, sure. The characters in it had had a terrible catastrophe in their life. It was their life, they were trying to make their life go on, but there's inevitably a separation with people, couples that have a terrible tragedy, like the loss of a child, can bring people together, but it can be terribly isolating in your grief.
0: So okay, the waiter comes, and Laura orders what she had last night to save trouble, I guess because she's so miserable that eating has become functional rather than a pleasure like everything else in her life. Um, John orders in Italian. I just, I love the idea that John can speak limited Italian and she can't speak any. Um, And so then there's this whole lost in translation thing happening again. I'm not talking about the film, I'm talking about actual lost in translation where there are certain things that characters are not privy to all the time. So when John's speaking in Italian Mm. to the waiter, Laura, Laura doesn't really know what he's saying. There's always one character who seems to be at a disadvantage for some reason.
3: That's a, that's a really good point, and that comes up later on. But the translation error is a recurring thing.
0: Yeah, and Rogue uses it in a sinister way. We often yeah. He often will linger a little longer on a scene than he needs to so that we can see two characters talking in Italian. And there's no subtitles in this mm, film. I
3: no. don't know what they're saying. I, saw, I looked for them several <laughs> times. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I remember that the especially the scene when he walks up to the hotel owner after the hotel's yes. closed. I was like, what the yeah. fuck is going on, man? Yeah. Like, I, I was checking the uh, the subtitles. I was like, "Have Criterion fuck this up? Like, what's going on?" They <laughs> had not. No, mm.
0: it's it's very deliberate, and it's almost always used. It, it makes just, you feel uncomfortable. It's like yeah. that, you, you speaking get speaking
3: in Italian. I think was the subtitle I had. Oh, really? It's just speaking in Italian. <laughs> it's because cool, it gives you like a subjective point of view. You get his in, in that thing yeah. that I'm talking about. You get his point of view. You don't know what they're saying. He doesn't know what they're saying.
0: Yeah. And there's always something disquieting about it. You never think Mm. they just have a nice happy banter. You're like, are they talking about Laura and John? Do they have some sort of dark plan for Laura and John? Yeah, It's never done in a way that feels friendly. The only thing that feels friendly is is, I guess the remnants of these two people's love for one another. Mm. That's deep. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. On her way to the bathroom because, you know, Wendy has... Hurt her eye she bumps into laura's chair and laura is jerked forward wendy apologizes to laura and we notice a golden mermaid brooch just under her lapel i think that this is one of the first red herrings in the movie because the Mm. editor and the director have both said yeah there's a bit of misdirection in the film there are some things that are very significant there are other things that have just been thrown in there as misdirection Mm. the mermaid brooch i looked it up you know so the mermaid is a potent symbol of a creature who's in love with death in ancient folklore, they often portend misfortune and are associated with shipwrecks and natural disasters. So, okay, so um, mermaids know something terrible is going to happen before it does. Obviously, we can relate that to the film. Yeah. that's what mermaids do. Well, yeah, they portend misfortune and they're often associated with shipwrecks and things like that. So, that's I suppose
1: the about, I thought um, mermaids mermaid. lured sailors to their death. Am well, I, that yeah. Am I wrong on? No,
0: that's, no, no. That's that's, yeah. that's true. But yeah. apparently, they're also this is I don't okay, know. I don't know where a, I got this from. Probably mm, Wikipedia. Little
3: but, mermaid's fucking bullshit. man. Especially but I mean, it comes back
0: later. John's at their apartment and he's got it in his hands. He's picked it up yeah. the mermaid brooch. I was like, okay, this freaking mermaid yeah, yeah. brooch. Does it mean mm. something? Well, not really. It doesn't go anywhere. It's yeah. gold. It's not red significantly. I guess I a mermaid
1: like, brooch has something has something to do with water as well. If that's all it is, then that's something oh, still. Oh, that's very
0: good too yeah. as well. So Laura sees the old women struggling, I don't know what they're struggling to get in the bathroom door, and goes to help them. It's funny just... if the dust got in the blind lady's eye. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> <coughs> but you're blind. <laughs> Any of our listeners
1: are blind, we apologise.
0: Yeah. We, we love the blind and the indigent. Alone at the table, John looks over Laura's writing. We then cut to the bathroom where the women are all chatting. Wendy tells Laura she and her sisters are from the country. The entire conversation is seen through an eight paneled mirror. The old woman apologises for staring at Laura earlier, which John noticed but Laura hadn't.
3: Do you like the fact that that was shot in the reflection of a mirror?
1: This is my favourite visual setup in the movie. Wow. This scene wow. in the bathroom. Just the way that the gaze is redirected. Mm. And you see Mm. so many different things. So in my notes here, I've got the sighted woman is looking into the mirror. I forget what her name is. Wendy. Wendy is looking into the mirror. And Laura is looking at her. Uh, It's framed so that the gaze of both of them is directed as one another. But because we know that's not what's happening in there, it's somewhat unsettling. They're Mm. not looking that way or they're not looking that way in the way that it's shown on screen. And so it becomes unsettling. And every single time you use this, there's one section where it's framed so that the uh, Heather is in three different mirrors and Laura is in one of those mirrors and she looks shocked. But you know that Heather can't see the expression on Laura's face. Mm. It's a lot of misdirection in this scene about exactly what's happening, what people are thinking. You know what people are thinking based on what they would be thinking, based on what's happening in there, what they've just been told, what Laura's just been told about her daughter and everything. But the way that it's framed makes you think that there's so much more going on. It makes you think there's so much you're not seeing. And it makes you think that where everybody's looking, if you were to read it as the correct screen, is not actually where they're looking in real life.
0: And I think it's really clever that Rogue very deliberately doesn't show us Heather's face full on. And you don't realise that you haven't seen it. Until you see Heather's face and you see mm. those cloudy eyes, I think it's one of the most frightening cuts in the
3: film. The idea is all like that you're physically looking back in a reflection, mm. if that makes sense as well. So the idea of clairvoyance and second sight and looking back and all that kind of stuff—it it's such a huge motif. Yeah, it's just so well realized in that scene. And, and there
0: are also all kinds of spiritual and supernatural connotations with mirrors. Mm. You know, in our culture, they mean seven years bad luck if you break a mirror.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, um, I mean, that shot with the three mirrors, it makes it look like Heather can see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I read that anthropologists believe that superstition surrounding mirrors probably began with our primitive ancestors seeing their reflections on the surface of water and believing it was their soul they were seeing. And to shatter that image would mean that the soul would disband from the body and misfortune would follow them. Another ancient myth credits mirrors with the power to foresee the future, just like John.
3: And her eyes are almost mirrors as well. A lot of people do act in a strange way to events yeah. where human beings would generally act a different way. Like in this movie, in this movie, yeah. so it also gives that little bit of extra weight to like, is this a cult star? Is this not working? Yeah. Who's in on it? And it just and there is so many red herrings and things like that because yeah. like and it is it's very well placed. But this scene I think is also good because you first time you get a decent amount of time with Laura mm-hmm. as well. And she is such a likeable character. She's yeah. so, like, receptive to the women. Like, it's yeah. like almost straight away, she's almost like, hey, like that kind of thing. And it's really...
0: And for the majority of the film, we're on Laura's side, even though she's the one that kind of starts to say, su- oh, I suddenly believe in the metaphysical, you know? And, and she just goes with it. And John's very atheistic. And even though I'm probably, well, I know I'm far more aligned with John, mm. I was far more on Laura's corner. And you get the yeah. feeling throughout the whole film that you're not really... That John's missing something.
3: Atheists don't tend to be good characters, like <laughs> uh, uh, like I mean, he is, but like generally you're, you're more it's not as interesting because yeah. it does probably resonate more with.
0: We get that shot of Heather, and she's blind, and we see her three tiered mirror, you know, and it's like oh goodness, she's really blind, and she's got those cloudy eyes, and she's got that serene face, and it's just fucking creepy. And then we have that flashback of John and Laura leaving their country estate mm. after their daughter's death, mm. and it's like a gloomy, rainy day. Horrible rainy day, yeah. And then that flashback dissolves back into Heather's cl- uh, Heather's cloudy eyes.
1: And also there's another shot of the pond in there, and yeah. then a shot of Laura looking, obviously, quite sad that they're leaving their house where their daughter died and everything. But you know,
0: the fact that it dissolved into Heather's eyes made me think that it was Heather seeing it. Rather than Laura remembering mm-hmm.
1: it, it's an odd placement for yeah. that particular sequence. At first, I was uh, confused the first time I watched it that it yeah. was a flashback. But you are throughout the whole movie and then confused: what's flashback,
3: what's flash forward, what's mm. present time? And in a comment in a present day film, that would like zoom in into a CGI eye and then they'd go into <laughs> her like subconscious. Yeah, and, like, thank fucking god this was making instead it, yeah, instead you could just make a cut. <laughs> and, like, you know, give a sense of perspective.
0: Okay, the bathroom, Laura catches whatever was in Wendy's eye. As Heather looks disturbed, Heather tells Laura that she's sad. You're
2: sad. You're so sad and there's no need to be. Oh, my sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl. Sitting between you and your husband and- And she was laughing. Yes. Oh yes, she's with you. She's with you, my
0: dear. And she's laughing. She was laughing. She was laughing. Like that. We move to a shot of Christine running in the front yard to the same slide we saw John looking at earlier without the bleed. It turns out that John is studying this because we've now cut back out to the restaurant. He's actually looking at that slide. We see him set it back in his briefcase amongst a heap of other slides. Are we to presume then that that blood ink... Never actually happened because the slide is out? okay.
3: Didn't it run out though? Didn't the ink of it run out?
0: I thought it was running from the Red Hood, so wouldn't that Red Hood be all drained of the ink? Or I don't, I don't know how they. So work in though. the restaurant
3: was the slide. It showed the Red Hood, or it didn't.
0: It shows the Red Hood, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's it's not oh. corrupted. The image is fine, so it almost gives the impression that John hallucinated that and that was part of his
3: Yeah I mean I guess maybe
0: that
1: That's really nicely done because you start quite tight on the frame of the slide again Mm -hmm. and very similar to what was in England when they were at home and then it pulls out and it does this really nice quite fancy track away from John and frames him really nicely at the table it's a really beautiful shot
0: I think the whole scene where Heather starts talking to Laura about Christine is really, really frightening. Mm -hmm. I just find the whole thing really frightening and Laura looking at her and she's not looking at her like really like grateful or, or happy. She just looks totally disconcerted and, it's a really, really authentic reaction to how I imagine someone would react.
3: And it's like, yeah, you're bringing up a secret that I don't want to be sharing.
0: One minute you're having casual banter and then the next minute this total strange You're bringing the
3: thing that you've buried deep down inside for so long and you've just brought it up and everything's just come back. The yeah. idea as well with the restaurant where John looking at all the slides again, it's good as well because you know that he's taking that memory with him. Like, he doesn't show it anywhere near as much as Laura. No. But you know very early on he is still grieving a lot you know that but like but like you know that he's taking it with him and he's just dealing with it in a different way and it's just a nice little touch as well the idea that he has to take it with him purely because some of it's his work yeah and that's so fucked up as well
0: and yet for him personally that part of his work that one little fragment that object has come to somehow be connected to this terrible event in his life. We cut back to the bathroom. Laura is now pressed to the bathroom wall while Heather touches her face. Wendy gives Laura some ammonia to sniff as if to rouse her, which made me think, had she fainted? And if she had fainted and we didn't see it, that's interesting because about five minutes later she <sighs> faints again. As the old woman women leave, Laura takes Heather's hand and asks if she really saw her daughter. Heather says with a tranquil smile. She was there. She was there. Once on their own, we hear Wendy say to Heather, I felt you were right. I felt we should. This is the first time that we see the psychics away from John and Laura, and they're saying something that could be construed as, are these people on the level, or are they, do, do they have some kind of... Agenda. Yeah. There's
3: another instance of this later on in the film. There's a few. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, the okay. latter laughing. Yeah, that's the one. And, I then, th- and then, yeah,
0: that just random cut of them both looking, holding that picture frame laughing. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Nick Rogue doesn't really want us to be totally comfortable with these two yeah. women yet. No, there's,
1: there's, there's a lot of it. If you were to look at it, you can kind of see why people would think that the movie... Some people, obviously some of the original reviews will get to that. Um, that it was... The story wasn't really... It didn't have a lot of weight to it. And I guess you get there from doing over-exaggerated performances and set-ups of scenes, and there's a couple of shots in here where it's a bit too hammy that these two women might be evil. Yeah. And so I guess you Hammy did you say? Yeah, it's a little too overactive, it's a little too obvious that he, he's saying, Okay, yep, they're good in this scene and they're bad in this scene and so I didn't think so. No, I think there's I think there's could just be construed as a red herring as well. I think there's a definite change where she
0: could be saying, I felt you were right to tell her that you saw it. Not in
1: this scene, but in later scenes oh, yeah. there are a few things where, okay, yeah, they look pretty evil right now. Oh look, we'll argue about that later, David. We? Well Will we need to argue though?
0: Maybe. <laughs> they leave the restaurant with Heather looking back over her shoulder, and she smiles peacefully as if she sees everything in the restaurant. Do you remember that? She's mm. being guided out by Wendy and it just looks like she can see everything even though we know she's blind. Laura emerges from the bathroom, sits, then stands, then collapses across the table in a rather nasty fall which is done in slow motion from a number of jarring angles camera is drawn to water spilling onto the tiles. Of course it is. This camera is very, very water focused. Laura is carried out of the restaurant on a chair wrapped in a blanket and boards an ambulance boat. The commotion attracts onlookers who congregate over a bridge. Actually, I'm just thinking the people of Venice have some cause to... What are you laughing at before You dick.
3: Ambulance
0: boat. I just... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I looked to see if there was an actual word for a boat. Yeah, yeah. There was an ambulance boat. I couldn't find one. I decided to go with the ambulance boat. All right? <laughs> I just wasn't expecting that. I'm sorry. I'm
3: <laughs> just I'm fine.
0: I can understand actually why the people of Venice might yeah. have some objections to this film because the people of Venice in this movie,
3: yeah. they're, not they prick, they're
0: wankers. They're always, oh, oh, a body's being dredged from the Venetian channels. Let's go and have a look. And, you know, like it's a, there's this whole a bit sick thing. But I don't think it pertains to people of Venice. I think it pertains to people, people anywhere. Are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. John arrives at the hospital to find Laura in high spirits. Her room is adjacent to the hospital nursery and she's watching the kids play. Laura tells John, Christine is still with us. She recounts her meeting with Heather. And she describes Heather,
2: she says, They kept staring they told me this because they could see sitting between us. They could see Christine sitting between us. This is two people who we don't even know. This. Listen, listen now. The, the, there's, there's one who's blind She's the one that can can see She's the one that had the second sight She She's blind, she described to me Christine's red plastic mac
0: And I thought that was interesting Because John isn't blind But he can't see uh, John is disturbed by Laura's certainty And believes she has been duped by these women But when Laura tells him that she hasn't felt this good in months He decides not to press the issue This again, you know When I talked about that heartbreaking moment Where he grabs her hand mm. He so badly wants her to feel better Mm. even to the point where he will deny his fundamental intrinsic beliefs that this metaphysical world doesn't exist.
1: There's, um, that's a little bit different to the reaction in the book is that um, he's kind of quite upset internally that she is now saying that Christine is alive. Yeah. Um, in the movie, I agree with you, it seems like he's almost accepting of Christine having these visions, which he thinks are delusional. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the book, he's quite upset mm. when, he, when she comes back to the table, I think
3: in the restaurant, and says that to him. Yeah. It could also be the thing where he just thinks that she's had a trauma, she's just having this weird little episode. Yeah, I think as well. so. so. there could be that. It's like, okay, well, she's happy now to scare her out of the hospital. Yeah. What did you think of her, the shot of her looking at all the kids?
0: You imagine that this character, if she'd seen the kids earlier, wouldn't have really, really been able to take any joy out of it? But now that she's accepted that Christine is going on in some capacity, like just fundamentally Mm. believes it, there's a complete 180 switch in this character,
3: and there's a literal divide between her and children as well in that thing. Yeah, like like the glass, the glass thing. She's literally looking out for what she wants, and it's like I've just got because of how happy she looked at looking at kids. I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm actually really starting to. And apply it a little
0: bit more. And it's interesting that there's a particular boy that she seems to be talking to because there's a heap of kids in that nursery. Yeah. And at the end of the scene, we see that that boy's holding a red and white ball. Shit, I did not
3: mm. notice that.
0: Which I thought was really eerie.
1: It's, it's kind of eerie that later on she keeps hold of that ball
0: from, she from
3: Christine. Yeah. Oh, that she's still got it in her. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. taken
0: it to Venice with her. Yeah. And she looks at it fondly.
3: Why <laughs> do <laughs> just take the pond with her?
0: She has a vial of the pond water around her neck. But it's frozen. (laughs) (laughs) It's frozen. (laughs) I just don't feel like you let him go. Now we come to the boat ride sequence. John and Laura are on a water taxi when a discussion in, in Italian breaks out between the captain of the boat, John, and a group of detectives who are at the scene of a homicide. The driver is made to take an alternate route and he's very peeved that he has to do this. This is our first indication that there is a killer on the loose yeah. in Venice.
1: I um, didn't get at first that there was this murder yeah. going on. Um, that there was a murder investigation in this scene.
0: Well, certainly from this scene, you're not to. There's nothing in it to indicate that there's a serial killer or that this is part of a chain of incidents that are going to have kind of central.
1: I think this is the like uh, one of the as you said, the scene where he's talking to the uh, person in the hotel and yeah. it's in Italian and you don't know what he's saying. And this is in Italian and you don't know what they're saying. It just seems like they're arguing and they need to take an alternate route, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't know why. So it's one of those, another one of those things where
3: it's kind of lost in translation. Right? I don't know if the serial killer stuff in this film, I don't know if it's realised as well as it could be. Really? Yeah, I don't because I don't think you really 100% understand the stakes of it. Mm. At the end, until you either read up on it or do multiple viewings of it, yeah, it's, also, it, guess- it never comes to the fore, and I don't know if that's not supposed to. But I, I don't. Uh, the first time I watched it, I don't believe that I was really following that there was a serial killer subplot. I was just like, there was dead bodies. Well, you
1: wouldn't call it a serial killer movie. It's no, definitely no, not really, the least yeah. important. No.
3: yeah, line that runs through the movie. I know that there's a weight behind it because you're so invested in the characters, but I had no. Mm. inkling the first time that that was the other side of it it's either christina or it's possibly it's like i never and i don't think they do a really good job of establishing the serial
1: killer mm. theme and tying it into the ending That's, of the yeah, movie exactly what I'm i saying, mean yeah. it could
3: be some random acts that are occurring yeah oh uh, yeah i didn't yeah, I, oh, yeah honestly i didn't i didn't get that straight away and we may have benefited from subtitles in that scene <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i like the idea i like the idea that you're that you're a bit lost. Yeah. And you, you don't know the... what's happening in these scenes where there's Italian dialogue. There's nothing worse yeah. as a film goer than being spoon fed.
0: Rogue certainly is never guilty of that. Not <laughs> no.
3: I guess you'd read it differently if you spoke both languages.
0: And it'd be interesting to, to know how much of the Italian is actually Good. works in the context of yeah. the story. Yeah.
3: They're <laughs> yeah. just saying pizza a lot. <laughs> pizza, spaghetti. <laughs> but no um, but racial stereotype. If you look at the profile
0: yeah. of this serial killer, Really, we're led to believe that this serial killer is killing women. Yep. And then John becomes one of the victims of this serial killer. Mm. So, you know, I, I guess if you were to look at it in terms of, like, criminal profiling, it's kind of a bit of a kind of bizarre and mm. inconsistent illustration of a serial killer. This is the part where we have that terrible dubbing from Laura where she says...
2: I thought this was the place is where... Isn't this where you were? <laughs>
0: And she's clearly not not saying saying that to Mm.
1: him. And there's some lines in there that have been cut out from Laura because her mouth moves and nothing comes out. Mm. And then there's the line from Donald Sutherland, or John, says, Oh, Laura. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. so
3: much louder than the rest of the scene.
0: That's when she tells him that she wants to go to a church.
3: Yeah. There's a few audio moments in this film. Yeah. Where, that, and, where it's really jarringly mm, But it
1: was the way that films were shot in Italy in the 70s, in the yeah. 60s and in the 70s. The directors, the major directors... Mm. Of Italian cinema who did that You know, it was partly due to the fact That there wasn't really good on-set audio recording Or on-location audio recording at the time We were on a boat as well It was loud Apparently the main section of, of shooting films in Italy Was uh, close to air traffic and such I'm not sure if that had anything to do mm. with this movie Since we're in Venice um, But also because the overdubbing Or the uh, post-syncing of audio Was an industry in itself in Italy And it gave a lot of actors work So Mm. that was a self-sustaining industry. So you think they'd get it better. And it came out of this idea, and uh, nobody's really sure how true this is, that uh, Mussolini, who was in charge of the country at the time, didn't want audio recorded on set because he wanted full control over the audio and the way that Italy was portrayed in films when they went out to foreign countries. And it gave people an opportunity Mm. that when they were to make a film that went to France or went to Germany or went to America, they would have to record Completely new dialogue. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now there's a dictator. <laughs> now there's a dictator yeah, who's taking control of the film industry, which was massive in Italy. I, wasn't I mean, sure. it's a massive film industry back It's interesting.
0: Late. I wasn't sure if it was sort of poor craftsmanship or if it was intentional. But I
3: mean, it happened a lot, especially in yeah. low budget movies. Yeah. Anyone interviewed on the Criterion edition would have said it was intentional.
0: Laura asked to go to a church. We're again harking back to the sort of Christianity. Theme that runs through this entire film. Christianity, I suppose, has a kind of obscure association with occultism and with paganism and a few of the other themes that come through this film. But I think it's interesting that the film focuses on Christianity.
1: Well, we are in a Catholic nation. Yes, obviously, and we're yeah. We're from a Christian nation
3: mm. in England, the mm. characters. And it is the 70s. I never got the impression until she said, I want to go in this church, that these characters were in any way religious.
0: I don't think they are. And we know that they're not actually soon when they meet um, Bishop Barbarigo. I don't say his she name. Right? Is, right? Yeah, that's clearly someone who doesn't know how to, how to behave yeah. uh, with a priest. But, anyway. but I, I, I
1: don't think it's uh, weird to have the themes in the movie.
0: I love it, I think it just adds another layer I'm not quite sure what it's relevance or significance is but it, it certainly works well, it's in keeping with the rest of the film You put
3: the God complex in anything and you've got something interesting
1: <laughs> I guess the idea of occultism ties into Some kind of opposition to
0: Christianity And
1: that's the biggest thing Yeah, It's got ties in it but it's a definitely a Completely at odds with what Christianity stands for
0: Except that they're both interested In the metaphysical and spirituality The idea that nothing is what it seems
1: Which again is at odds with Christianity
0: Well Christianity is a belief in the spiritual Well Christianity is
1: definitely a, You can't see anything and nothing is what it seems
0: In the next scene we're at the church They stand in a beautiful church, but John doesn't think so. I don't like this church at all. Laura asks John for change so she can light a candle for Christine. They quibble a bit about the change and Laura ends up lighting six candles. John steps away and watches Laura from a distance. He notices a tour group filter through the church and notices Wendy amongst them. He quickly gets down on his knees and covers his face as if he's praying, not wanting to be seen by her. As the tour group disappears from view, Heather, the other sister, the blind psychic, appears against a red backdrop. She runs her fingers along some vertical black bars with gold trim and sighs happily, but John doesn't seem to notice her. Laura startles him by resting her hand against his, and they leave just as a priest steps up to the pulpit to begin Mass. One of the prayer candles goes out of its own accord, leaving only five lit. So let's talk a little bit about these six candles. Mm. You raised something really interesting Mm. with me, Damien, about believing that it was the age of Christine.
1: Well, I don't know. Is it Christine's age ever stated?
0: No, not in the film.
1: No. Well, maybe she was when five. she died. She was five when she died and she would have been six when the candles were lit. And I thought maybe that meant that the candle was being extinguished because uh, Laura's belief that now Christine is still alive in some
0: sense. So um, the idea that the sixth candle gets extinguished and uh, Christine never makes it to her sixth birthday.
1: Or the fact that Laura's lighting the candle because Christine would have been six. Laura believes that Christine is alive there she believes that she is six. And it, extinguishing that sixth candle is the film's way of saying she's not alive.
0: I think it's really funny that Heather's just walking through going... Ah. Yeah,
1: that, that was... I, was gonna I think it's really that. funny that Heather walks through in so many different scenes and don't look <laughs> now. How
3: small is Venice? That scene where she goes past and she makes that sound, I laugh at that every time. Yeah. Like, like I, I, I don't think it's intentionally funny, and I think it's one of those moments. And him cowering away from her felt a little bit out of place.
0: I mean, look, I think
3: the reason that he doesn't like Heather and Wendy is because Heather and
0: Wendy for Laura start up the whole Christine conversation that he does not want to have. He Mm. does not want to have it. I don't, Mm. I don't necessarily think he's really angry that they've influenced Laura to believe that Christine is still alive in some metaphysical context. I think that Mm. he just doesn't want to have the conversation for him. Mm. He ignores the subject of Christine because for him as a heterosexual male, who doesn't want to talk about his feelings that is the only way he thinks they're going to progress. Don't us no all with that button. <laughs> well, that's one of the
1: themes that I found um, when it came to the discussion of grief. I've got a quote here from a person named Richard Armstrong who wrote about it in Mourning Films, a critical study of loss and grieving in cinema. And he said, Unable to come to terms with the passing of the little girl whose corpse he held in his arms, John is literally unable to revert to terms of any kind to describe how he feels. Hence, he never speaks of Christine, whereas her mother, Laura, speaks of little else. John's psychology remains as mysterious as his eventual fate. Is he the victim of the notion that men are incapable of showing their emotions? Or does he feel responsible for Christine's death?
0: Reminds me of a bit of dialogue that comes later where Laura very casually Hmm. tells him, and it's mutually understood between them, that John is responsible for Christine's death. She Hmm. says it without any feeling, really.
1: And so maybe that's what's happening throughout the movie so far. He can't talk about it. He won't talk about it. He doesn't want to entertain Laura's notions that... Christine is still alive, because that would involve talking about it and talking about his responsibility in her death.
0: Yeah. This scene was um, actually longer, with a lot more dialogue. John deriding Laura's sudden interest in the church and spiritualism, but Rogue felt it was too movie dialogue-y. Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland walked into the church, and Julie Christie said, oh, I like this church, and Donald Sutherland said, no, I don't. He's like, good, let's put that dialogue in the film.
3: The film was shot with the... Panavision 200R camera and I think having that extra 15 degrees of shutter to be able to open allowed them to shoot that scene in natural light. Sutherland talks about it on, talks about like how Barry Lyndon was shot with these incredibly fast lenses and Kubrick only had 185 degree shutter and he had to go to all these lengths but they got to do more and like they were shooting at like 50 ASA which is so slow. comparison Mm. today the fact that they shot a lot of exteriors and interiors and natural light in this film is gives the sense of reality to the everyday nature of what's going on and then when the occult stuff it it feels a lot more menacing because you are so it never feels like movie lighting
0: yeah, and then there's a real darkness to this scene. Yeah. You know, <coughs> scene's I feel yeah. like
3: the whole movie's a little bit
1: washed out. Yeah, but that's because mm. you didn't watch
0: the Criterion version.
1: Because <laughs> I have a crappy Blu-ray version. I mean, this uh-huh. film oh, looks one looks stunning. It looks stunning. Do you not feel like the film is criterion. washed out?
0: No. Okay. Not well, Certainly not the Criterion one. Oh, because there's there's a
3: lot of grain present. Um, I mean, as is a lot of films from that era, because of natural light as well mm-hmm. like there is so much grain in it because they're pushing it as hard as they can they're pushing the stock they're pushing yeah they oh, they're shooting wide open and all of those things and it's like yeah it is but there is a there's a grain throughout it but like I think uh, it is honestly just the transfer like mm-hmm. I think the criterion one there is a lot more punch to it yeah there's only a couple of shots where I did see that washed out kind of yeah and
0: through this film you are constantly mostly looking at grays and browns on overcast days so I mean there is it's gloomy but it doesn't well, look faded
1: no, that's that's generally what I mean though, the colour color
0: palette of the movie. Okay, so now we have the, the meeting with uh, John and Laura and Bishop Barbarigo Bar Barigo, <laughs> along a Venetian street who's involved in the church restoration that John is captaining. Laura apologises for being late and kisses his ring, a gesture that catches him off guard. And he says,
2: Your churches belong to God, but he doesn't seem to care about them. Does he hear about the priorities? Do we have stopped
0: listening. Barbarigo is really, really interested in Laura, and the real conversation is happening between him and Laura. John keeps trying to talk to him about the restoration, but mm. Barbarigo is distracted because he can see that something really, really transformative has happened to Laura, and that's what interests him. And of course, at the end of the scene, John says, have "The sensation that he
3: doesn't give an ecclesiastical fuck about the church." <laughs> I really like that line. That usually, lines like that are so specific to a situation, and when they're yeah. used with like swearing, is usually fall really flat. But so the, his delivery with that is so good. He's yeah. so fucking angry at it. It's a
0: very screenwritery line, but Sutherland yeah, plays yeah. it perfectly. Yeah.
3: This is a part of where
1: we see the decay in Venice as well, and there's the exterior shots of all of these churches crumbling, and there's the um, statue that's missing a head. Um, and also there's a sign that they pass that says Venice in peril. Yeah.
0: This for me was the scene where I really, really noticed, and I mean, I think this comes to a crescendo in the sex scene, how much Laura has changed. And I, I got the feeling that she'd kind of been an agnostic all of her life, hadn't really given it much thought, mm. but that upon meeting Heather, she's utterly convinced that her daughter exists in some other realm.
3: See, I didn't, I didn't I don't know if I saw it that way. I saw it more as like, this is a pretty woman talking to me. No, I'm a priest. Oh no, that, not at that's all. That's how I saw it. I saw it as him
0: realizing that something had happened to her.
3: See, I don't know if priests have a lot of insight.
0: I think he does, though. Really? I think, I, I don't I know think he's he a really that. important character. I think he's a really, uh,
3: he's a really and a good, good character. Yeah, and I think a really good actor as well.
0: I didn't think there was anything sleazy about his interest in Laura. One real interesting thing about him is that through a, a big portion of the film, he's wearing a red bishop hat. And we we know that that red means something that he's significant in some way, and I think in his case it's a benevolent way.
1: Yeah, that was kind of the exception that was made, I guess, because mm. of it's just tradition to wear that, so. and and you don't wouldn't normally, I guess, associate that with evil. So you get away with one. It a little bit. When I first, especially in that culture,
0: when I first saw this movie, <clears throat> it really really bothered me that Laura just accepted that. Oh yeah, my daughter's a ghost. Mm. Um. I felt like it was weak mm. um, because it, it's so not, I suppose, how I personally would react. It almost felt like it was bordering on magical realism. You know, those kinds of movies where it's, there's just a general acceptance that there's magic in the world? Oh, yeah, okay, I accept it now. Mm. Um, to me, it started to feel like I started to look mm. at her like she was a bit loopy. Um, and it's only in constant rewatches that, you know, mm. where I know, I know I'm expecting it. But now I can that's, accept
1: it. I guess if you don't look at the movie as um, some kind of study of grief, it's difficult to take on board that someone would react the way that she does. Yeah. And grief can make people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, like believe in the supernatural.
0: Laura asked John why Barbarigo has asked if she was Christian, and John tells her it's because she kissed his ring, which isn't something a Christian would do unless they were meeting the Pope. These are where we get like two or three ladders, dong, 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 through it, right? Oh, wow. So I thought that was really interesting. I had to look up ladders. And ladders in occultism, it's a symbol that connects the material world to the spiritual world. Specifically, it's a device that enables one to observe both planes of consciousness. These ladders appear just after Laura has had her transcendent experience. She is now conscious to the spiritual realm and is suddenly surrounded by ladders. Mm,
1: Didn't know any of that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So um, when do we get them? Uh, So behind them, as they're walking away from Barbarigo, a laborer is carrying a ladder. Uh, Then we follow them across the street into the hotel where the manager is helping a concierge who is stepping down from a ladder with a light fixture in his hands. So we we get, I just thought it was really interesting. She now sees the metaphysical and the physical, and the ladder is the device that's or the symbol of someone being able to Mm. see or, yeah, travel to both planes. So, okay, now um, we're in the bathroom back at their uh, apartment. Laura hangs up her coat. She talks about wanting to get into some work tomorrow, that she's had enough of lolling about. She notices Christine's red and white ball packed away in a box, and she smiles. Get into some work? What does she do? I don't know, actually. that Yeah, she just says that she's going to get back into some work. I mm-hmm. guess it was put in there. To say, well, you know, she's now ready to join the land of the living again. Mm. But um. it doesn't actually specify what her work well, is. Yeah. Yeah. A symphony is playing on a radio as Laura does her hair in the bathroom mirror. She draws a bath and gets undressed. John is doing some sketches. We get that sh- another shot of those dark awnings, which look identical to the awnings we saw in the film's opening at the British estate. So that's really odd. I can't really account for that. John steps out of the shower while Laura is in the bath. Laura laughs affectionately at his love handles. He weighs himself on bright red scales. A very unflattering view of his ass is seen in the mirror. Hmm. Both stand naked in the bathroom. John brushes his teeth and puts on his wristwatch. Just his wristwatch. We then see Julie Christie's ass in the mirror, which is much shapelier than Sutherland's. John is then sit, uh, seen sitting naked at his desk working on his sketches. Uh, Laura lets in a hotel maid who's holding fresh towels. She catches John sitting naked at his desk. We then cut to Laura and John lying on the bed. Laura tells John he has toothpaste on his mouth and she licks it off him, which leads into the much talked about infamous sex scene of the film. Here we go, we're finally here. Um, so, okay. Is this first the most of all, exciting thing to bring up
1: during the podcast?
0: Oh, it's either this or the dwarf. We'll um, see, yeah. So, okay, Laura initiates sex by running her hand down John's naked back. It was Rogue's decision to have Laura initiate mm. the sex, and I really like that it's the girl that initi- or the woman that initiates it, um, with a tender gesture that isn't overly suggestive, and I think that's very real. You know, it's a kind of no-frills-come-on that uh, long-term couples develop over time. Uh, the sex is intercut with them getting dressed separately in the afterglow of their sex. Um, so, okay, what do we all think of the sex
3: scene in Don't Look Now? First off, do you think they
1: fucked? I never got the impression watching it that they had actually had sex. I watch it now and I'm kind of like, yeah, they're (laughs) not.
3: Like, it's pretty clear that they're not. No, I think
1: it was just a reaction to the time. Well, his
3: mouth, mate, the only thing I would think mm. would possibly be close, like, his mouth gets very close to her vagina. Like, I think, I think there's, I don't know how they weren't doing that, but.
0: We see that in a lot of films, though.
3: Now, but, like now. Back, but back then, yeah.
0: Well, those rumours were started by Peter Bart, who was a Paramount executive thought, at the yeah. time. Um, he wrote in his book that he was on set the day the sex scene was filmed, and he could clearly see Sutherland's penis moving in and out of Christie. He also claimed that Warren Beatty, who'd been involved with Christie at the time, demanded the scene be cut from the film. Sutherland Road, the he flew over
1: to the UK to demand that apparently.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I've heard a few. I've heard a few people say the Warren Beatty thing though. Like I had like I. It's clear to me listening to this Peter Bart guy that he's an idiot. But like, I have no doubt that Warren Beatty would do that. the same I Warren Beatty is.
1: Uh, very controlling person. He's obnoxious, like Sean He is Penn. obnoxious. Yeah, he is like Sean Penn. Mm. And Madonna dated both of them.
0: Well, she deserved that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but S- he he would do that. I can see that happening. But you know
0: what? Sutherland, Rogue, the DOP, and producer Peter Katz have emphatically denied the mm. rumours. Yeah. They, um, yeah. I mean, Julie Christie described it as it was as being really tough and very embarrassing. Donald Sutherland said that he was mm. traumatised by it. But I also did read
1: that they had it Affair, affair,
0: really? At the
1: time, but you know, it's it's all talk, I guess. And, and
3: on the Criterion thing as well, he he speaks. He goes, it was shot on. I'm not going to remember the camera. It was like an Arrowflex something. And he goes, "Have you ever heard one of those things?" And he goes, and it, and it goes like, <laughs> "Oh, yeah. It's the least romantic thing <laughs> you could ever imagine. He goes, like it was just awkward and yeah.
0: Yeah, it was loud. He was yelling instructions but over. Kiss yeah. her breast,
3: fondle but, this. But I, yeah. but I, but I, but I, I've heard different accounts. Like some of them say it was awful. It was, it was terrible. And then, like you hear, like Julie Christie. Saying it was a good experience, it was fun, it was lovely. Like, That's she, what
1: she says about everything
3: yeah. in this movie. No, she, goes, <laughs> it, she goes, "It was fun, it was lovely," but then she goes, "I was ta- I was traumatized." I was saying, "Like, what were you like?" Yeah. like
0: work <laughs> it out. Mate. I mean, but she also heard different things. I heard that it took nine hours, but then the DOP said it took an hour and a half yeah. one Saturday morning. So I think you know, and obviously, it all gets lost in memory
3: as well. Yeah, I these alone.
0: people are being asked to recount something in retrospect forty years later in DVD documentaries. The fact that I
3: don't get is that Peter Barr says he was there he has none I don't think he actually had a title on the film Uh,
1: it's been said since then that he wasn't there yeah yeah Yeah. Donald
3: Sutherland said there was four there was four or five people there there, there's the camera operator which I
1: think for someone like Julie Christie
3: who's a pretty big star Mm. at the time would be true I still have um, an auntie that believes it it and adamantly said it's it's the one (laughs) film that they, they actually got away with real sex and it's like okay first off I don't know if you're getting away with anything
0: and also does anyone care if yeah. it was done or oh, not, I genes. don't give a shit. Oh, was that supposed to just be like a little titillating bit for people when they're watching the film? I really couldn't care less if they had sex or not. Mm.
3: Part of me hates the fact that this scene has become what the film is notorious for. Yeah. Do you not like the scene? The scene is fine. I, I just hate the fact that the film is recognized. Like, oh, that's that film where they fucked on set. And yeah,
1: it's, like, it's it's odd because never never before studying for this have I thought about it as it's revolving around this sequence. Yeah.
0: No. And I love this scene. It's a great scene. I, I love that the scene for me is essentially about Laura's resurrection. Back to life, mm-hmm. from living in the past, she's now rejoining the present. I love that the scene has a kind of gender neutrality to it, because mm-hmm. we see as much of Sutherland as we do Laura, and apparently that was done by Rogue. I think he got some advice after. There's too much Laura. Put a bit more
3: Jon I do like the fact that you don't see enough male nudity in mainstream films, and this is a mainstream film at the time. And it was, and I think Donald Sutherland is quite—I would say brave because he's not putting himself in harm's way—but like he's fearless.
0: Yeah, and neither one of them have like swimsuit bodies. They look like real people. She's, baby. She's cute, but I mean, she's got you know, she's got no boobs. She looks like a twelve-year-old schoolboy with her shirt off.
3: I didn't find that. I didn't find the sex scene sexy at all. No, and and that's what I'm talk about. The I don't, I don't mind the scene at all. I think there are there are a couple of shots that I think make it seem more comical. The intercutting between them getting dressed and stuff I think is genius. I think, yeah. uh, you know, you hear about uh, Soderbergh using it in Out of Sight. All good, but there's one shot of, of someone doing his fly-up and it makes me laugh every time. It just seems so pantomime-y and it, it I just don't think it's staged very well. That and I hate the score in this Oh really? I hate it. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, there is a. I can't remember the.
0: Apparently the score was pared down. Um, the original thing that Denardo wrote, it, wrote it. said, "Yeah, pull it down." Or he had it done with a, a more kind of ostentatious yeah. instrument, and then he said, "Play it as a piano." Or I can't remember what's yeah. used. Well, a think this, maybe. I think this is a good
1: piano. Drum.
3: Jumping off point for me and my issue with the score. I I love. There's two kind of themes I, f- I feel, and there might be more than that, but there's, there's two major themes. There's two major themes. The one that sounds more childlike, I I hate. Like I I don't like the imperfectly
0: it played recital music. Yeah, and that's
3: played during at one point during the sex scene, and I and I don't I don't buy it. Like I don't I don't know if it's supposed to be this. This idea that it's all happy and everything's happening like that. I don't buy that, but I don't buy that it's completely intentional, that it's supposed to be a little bit cheesy. I don't know if I can give it the benefit of the doubt because it's used so much throughout the film. Yeah. I don't know. I just—I—I I don't buy the, the score in this scene. I just don't like.
0: I'm kind of the same with you, actually. I think there are certain parts of the score I love, like mm-hmm. the deep strings. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, and I like the music that goes you know that like panic music that's played a few times in the film and I think it's played in the trailer the recital music and the flute I don't know I'm a little bit more indifferent yeah. on
3: that's
1: yeah well how about specifically the use of the score in
0: this scene <sighs> um I don't really have an objection to it mm. but I think the images are so potent that for me really the score I don't know that I was very conscious of it um, but let's just talk a little bit about the composer. It was Pino DiNaggio. Rogue met him by chance in Venice on a volparetto and uh, suggested you score the movie. And at the time, DiNaggio was a real famous Italian singer. He'd never scored a film before. He had such a brilliant experience on this film that he essentially gave up his singing career and devoted himself purely to uh, film composition. Uh, he had great success, Was uh, kind of brought to America with Brian De Palma's Carrie, De Palma got him for Carrie because he'd loved the score to Don't Look Now. Subsequently, worked on lots of American horror films like Piranha, and he did a bunch of De Palma films: Dress to Kill, Blowout. Um, he also did The Howling. About this, about this scene and juxt, you know the juxtaposing the getting the with the having sex. I think that it's great at at kind of showing how in a long term relationship you have that mix of passion with then the ordinariness of getting dressed, how you have that warm, comfort-y feeling you feeling in a great, healthy relationship. But then you also have the exhilaration of passion and that they're put like that side by side and you're flitting between one and the other and that they're kind of coexisting. I think it's really, really beautiful and lovely and really interesting and different. And I
1: think it also shows that the dressing up, which is... You do after sex and you don't think anything of it. And if you are in that kind of relationship or you are that kind of couple, the sex is almost thoughtless to mm. an extent. It's a, practiced. Yeah, very practiced. It's going through the motions, even if it feels great, even if it's amazing. Yeah. It's going through the motions because it's not something new, it's not something scary. It's exactly the same as putting your clothes on afterwards.
0: Yeah. We also get the sense that for them, their desire is so peaked in this. It's like when you have that really great, like, you know, she kisses under his shoulder and she bites his foot. You know, when you have that really great sex where you're so into it that you end up going further than you ever thought you would.
1: I like how you say kissing under his shoulder. She's licking his armpit. Yeah. It's kinkier than just kissing under his shoulder. Okay, yeah. I was <laughs> trying to be delicate. Biting his
0: it. foot. It's a, it's a kinky <laughs> sex scene. It's but it's true, you than know, 50 when you're, of gray. you're with, with someone and you really want them, and then you wouldn't well, necessarily you want to be part but, of them. Yeah, yeah. So you end up kind of doing something that normally you would probably think yeah. is gross and It's not like from.
1: she's a fetishist,
0: it's just <laughs> no. that she's so comfortable with
1: him. I read this great quote from the British Telegraph newspaper, and it said, This might be the greatest sex scene of them all. It's a masterclass in making sex on screen dramatically meaningful as well as passionate. What makes the scene so sexy are its intercut flash-forwards to the aftermath, the pulling and straightening of clothes, the affectionate pats and glances that serve as echoes of the earlier lovemaking, its passion and afterglow and lingering sadness all at once, sensual overload from all sides.
0: I read um, read a nice quote from Nick Rogue, he was interviewed in film 4 and he said, You almost never see married couples having sex in films. The emotional context makes it unusual rather than the amount of buttocks thrust. and that's so true mm. most times just when you see characters having sex it's the first time they're having sex this yeah these people not. have been having sex for years mm. but this is a significant sexual encounter because it's been so long and because laura hasn't felt up to it and you know well,
1: they're it almost reconnecting yeah after the death of Christine.
0: And sex is almost always used from a male perspective and I like that this scene is really about Laura re-entering the
1: present. It's and about Donald
3: Sutherland re-entering
1: Laura. Apparently um, have you got anything written down about the classification history For this scene.
0: So the BBFC stipulated before Rogue was doing it. He could have no humping, no rise and fall between the thighs. The scene was completely removed from the film in Ireland. And in the US, I believe he had to remove nine frames. (laughs) Which isn't much. The third of a second. You know. um, So
1: the BBC cut it out when they showed it on TV. The whole thing.
0: I remember when I first watched Don't Look Now, I was like, oh, cool, a creepy little, you know, thriller set in Venice. And then this sex scene came on, and I, I remember being really struck by the sex scene, not at all bothered by it, but really surprised that yeah. it was in a movie like this. I did not expect it to happen. Obviously, when I first watched it, I read nothing about it. Caught me by surprise. It, it, I didn't expect to see it.
1: Did you find the, um, the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, did you find that case study... So they've got one on Don't Look Now and it says uh, the BBFC's view of the scene was that it went beyond what it had passed previously but there was no reason to intervene beyond placing it at the adult category. But the scene is not, compromised, uh, it is not comprised entirely of sexual mechanics as Rogue in a characteristic bout of playing with time continually cuts away from it. This creates a context for the sex as so something natural that has happened between a married couple signalling their attempt to return to some kind of normality after the tragedy they have suffered. And I think it got an X... Ex- Rating at the time, or an 18 rating? No, he
0: removed the nine frames to get an R rating. To get
1: an R rating, okay. So in 2000, it was uh, taken down to a 15 rating. They said that it was a picture of a loving relationship and part of a healing process for the couple. The cutting away to non-sexual activity during the scene avoided a gratuitous focus on mechanistic sex, and the lack of genital exposure meant that there was no strong detail. Mm. So it was yeah, yeah put down to a fifteen. So that's the classification history of the movie. All of the objections to anything in the movie were based around that
3: scene. Yeah. What's the issue with having mechanical sex?
0: I think it comes down to this Western prudishness. We can have someone yeah. seeing their, get them get their face shot off, and it will be an M fifteen. I mean, you look at even a film like The Hunger Games. We see people getting you know sliced up. But the minute that you have a film that shows sexual intimacy between people, Mm. everyone gets very nervous and it's an R18 and I don't understand that. All that this scene will do to a 13, 14, 15 year old will be to awaken that kind of budding curiosity that they're starting to have about sex. I don't see what the damage is. A child is going to be far more traumatised by watching someone be bloodied, tortured, murdered. That's going to have a bad impact on them far more than... A sex scene like this. I think it's our culture and I think it's a bit sick, really. We're so concerned about showing sex, but really have no compunction with showing all kinds of horrific, violent torture and murder. I mean, you see it on the 6 o'clock news. So after John and Laura have had their little bedroom liaison, they walk through the hotel lobby along a patterned red carpet, an isolated shot of a room in a hotel where all the furniture has been draped in sheets. This is our First indication that the hotel is closing. At the time, I didn't know. I was like, "What's mm. with this isolated shots so only later in the film you realise the hotel's closing, and obviously this is part of them folding everything up.
2: Also yeah. reminds
3: me a little bit of The Shining. I don't know why. Far less magnificent. There's that, and then there's like the blue title cards at the beginning. It's also like The Shining. Come and play with us, Danny. this is a little bit different now as well
1: because the tourist industry and. With flight and everything, it's so much easier to get somewhere, so you wouldn't really have hotels closing. Yeah. Back then, I guess it was normal, they closed for the winter, people mm. went on holidays, the, the owners of the building ran it as well, so mm. they
3: needed a break. It grosses a lot that um, Venice in the winter is a very depressing place. Yeah. And it's not like what you see on your postcards. postcards and that kind of thing, and that's,
2: I can imagine that as well. The winters are really quite grim in Venice, there's a sense of isolation. It's separateness.
0: Laura and John become lost, looking for a restaurant where they have reservations, and John takes Laura further down the alley, insisting that he's heading in the right direction, and come to a small area with steps leading down to a pool of water. The camera focuses on John's hand, hovering in front of him, as if he's been drawn to this place instinctively rather than intellectually. Laura notices rats and quickly heads back, but John remains struck by a tremendous sense of what he thinks is déjà vu. Of course, it's not déjà vu. This is the place where he'll be murdered.
3: And I think it's also a foreshadowing of them getting sort of lost in that thing. It's like, this is going to happen again later, and it's going to have much more severe consequences. Isn't it just really, really clever that he thinks it's déjà
0: vu, but what he's he's remembering is a memory of having a future vision?
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those films that the gravitas of what's going on really hits you after you've finished...
0: Yeah, and even in the days after.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, Laura suddenly
0: calls out from the bridge about the restaurant, and John answers her, but their conversation is interrupted by a ghastly shriek. From far off, John sees a small figure in a red raincoat dash away. So obviously the shriek we've heard is this killer's next victim, I assume. Laura is spooked, and John calls her to him, saying that he knows where the restaurant is. They turn a corner, and they suddenly come out onto a bustling street. In Venice, it's great how they're really alone and then they're really Mm. not alone Mm. just by turning a corner.
3: It's funny as well, like, going back into that sort of serial killer thing and how I don't know if it's really well executed is, like, all I I felt that whole time is that that person, that, that red figure in the coat was in danger as opposed to something. As opposed to them having, I do know that but that's you, Yeah, you're meant to. Yeah, you, you're meant to. But I just, I, I, but I still didn't get the idea that anyone was killed. Like what that yeah. scream? I didn't, I don't, I don't know. Like I don't, I don't know if it's played to the extent that it could be.
0: Yeah, I mean that's true. But as well, nothing in this film is stated. Yeah, Almost yeah, nothing. Yeah. Everything is like just the kind of gives you the a notion and impression, yeah. but you're never really told anything about anything. But I feel
3: like when you go back to, for every other element, I'm like that makes sense. Really yeah. Good. Whereas with the serial stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess.
0: I think it was very almost too <laughs>
3: fast. Yeah. So, what do you think John's thinking when he sees the figure?
0: I don't think he's really thinking anything. You don't think he wants to think something,
1: or
3: you don't think he even considers.
0: I think he thinks that someone in a red hood
3: dashed past, and he caught a glimpse of it. Mm. I think he thinks that, but I think he thinks that's strange, and I think he would Like he would have had a moment of sort of reminiscing. He like seems that. to pause. Yeah, he definitely pause. Well, he's just had he... this
0: really unsettling moment in that room where he he senses that he's been there before. Mm. So, and I mean, look, the whole scene is eerie. I think it's a really good, eerie scene. It's dark.
3: There's no music in that scene, is there? I don't think so. It's this one or the later scene where there's no music and all there, all you hear is footsteps.
1: And also there's a someone watching them from a window in one of these yeah, shots. Yeah.
0: And that happens several times in the film. Several
1: times, yeah. So the idea that they're being watched comes into mm. it here.
0: Yeah, you get the sense that everyone around this couple, we have reason to be suspicious of them. Mm. We cut to day now. John is halfway up a ladder working on a ch- on the church with Laura standing off to the side as several onlookers oversee the construction. John notices Heather and Wendy standing apart from the others. They walk off out of view. Laura seems to uh, head off in the same direction, and we sense that John's anxious their paths will cross once more, which of course they do. Laura is overjoyed to see both of them again. Heather tells Laura again about seeing her daughter, and asks if she died suddenly, and Laura tells her about the day Christine drowned. And Heather realises that John has the gift,
2: well, that's why the child was trying to talk to him. He has the gift. Even if he doesn't know it. Even if he's resisting it. It's a curse as well as a gift.
3: I love the way that that was staged. You really felt the distance between him and Laura as he's stuck up there on that ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I just I, I thought it was staged so well,
0: and his performance is perfectly modulated in that moment. You still has to concentrate on
3: what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah it's And
0: incredible. it's not you know it's not overwhelming. You get the feeling that he's nervous that they're going to meet, but it's not over yeah, yeah. overkill. This is where Laura makes a request of Heather. She asks if it's possible to contact the dead, and Heather
2: says, Second sight is a gift from the good Lord who sees all things, and I consider it an impertinence to call his creatures back from rest for our entertainment."
0: And Laura says, well, it wouldn't be for my entertainment. (laughs) Laura should have said, is that a yes or not? (laughs) Laura should have said, it wouldn't have been for my entertainment, you fucking bitch. How many children have you lost? Anyway, they invite Laura back to their house for tea. And the implication is that Heather is going to try and make contact with Christine. Laura then meets up with John. And they bicker on the street after Laura asked him to come with her to tea to meet Heather and Wendy. We should just say that um, the sex scene was actually a last-minute addition by Rogue mm. and that he felt that if he didn't have that scene that it would just be too many scenes of Laura and John bickering. And to be honest, I think he
3: kind of underestimated of it, yeah. because, yeah, I, I didn't don't... feel like they'd bicker No. It's so strange that you mention that because I've read different things about this, like that um, it was always planned and they shot it straight away. Mm. I've heard that they shot it first thing to get it out the way. Like there's like oh. quotes of that, and then you hear it's like it was an additional thing that they shot, and it's like I've got no idea what the truth.
0: is I know that the two screenwriters, when R- Rogue told them about it, they kind of objected to it, and it was only when that they saw the film that they went, oh okay, it does actually work."
3: And there's that there is it's one line of dialogue in the films like John and Laura have sex, <laughs> and that's <laughs> not, not a lot script, to go on. Yeah, in the script it's like John and Laura have sex or make love. I don't know what
1: it. My guess, what would you write? You'd write everything and get them to do it that way. John positions his wig
3: as he mechanically... (laughs) I think we need to move past the wig. I'm not past it.
0: The reason that John and Laura are arguing is because Laura wants John to come and meet Heather and Wendy. And Laura tells John that Heather is going to try and reach Christine... And John, you know, initially when Laura started on with this, I think he was like, okay, I'm not too comfortable talking about Christine. Certainly I'm not comfortable talking about Christine in this context, but it's making you happy. It's nice to have my wife back. I'll let it go for a little while. But here he's really starting to get, its he's getting pulled too hard in that direction by her. And he, he, his resistance is starting to come out. This is also where we have the abrupt cut of Heather and Wendy holding a picture frame and laughing, and the laughter feels maniacal.
3: What do you feel about this scene?
0: Ultimately, having watched the whole film, I think Heather and Wendy are benevolent, like Father Barbarigo, and I think that they're probably just laughing at a memory. Those picture frames are are apparently their children. Mm. They're probably holding a, a picture frame of one of their children, and they're both strapped by a memory, and they start laughing at it. Obviously, at this point in the film, there is something maniacal about
1: it. I guess there's a few things, like I said before, that that feel a little bit out of place. Yeah. And a little bit over the top. To create that feeling...
0: John is seeing images and he's disoriented. He Mm. doesn't know how to make sense of them. And Rogue does it to us as the audience. Yeah. We're seeing images and we're Mm. disoriented. We don't know what to think or how to feel or how to contextualise them, what they mean. Mm. I like that. I like that... What John is going through, we are also going through watching the movie. Mm -hmm. We're still on the street. And Laura says to John.
2: I've listened to you. You were the one who said let the children play where they want to. You let it go near that pond. Thanks for the memories, Laura. Thank you. You said you'd give your life in exchange for hers. Well, you can't do that. Jesus, H. Christ. John, she's trying to get in touch with us.
0: So this is where we get the Mm. reveal that there's just a mutual understanding between this couple that John is responsible for Christine's death. No anger anymore. Just, that's what happened. Those are the facts. I'll put it back out on the table again.
3: It's also bitchy that she just lays it all on him. She, like, she was sitting in this same room. Mm.
0: But we imagine that that comment has come out of a thousand conversations where she has screamed it at him. And he screamed back at her... And that there's been some sort of... they found some sort of common ground where they've been able to both go, yeah, okay.
3: I also feel like it was quite self-deprecating. John is that kind of guy, and I feel like he would just shoulder the blame.
0: We are now in Heather and Wendy's apartment, uh, and Laura is there. Heather names all of the children. This is when we discover those photo frames have photographs of their children in them. Wendy returns, and we find out that the bust on the mantle is a child named Angus, and it was Wendy's son who died young. And this is when Wendy says...
2: With jars, you're losing one like that. But I had two more. So can you, I dare say. And then Heather says, Nothing can take the place of the one that's gone.
0: I thought this was like a bit of a shallow comment for Wendy to make to Laura. Knowing that Laura has lost a child. You mean just a thoughtless comment? Yeah. 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 Like, oh, you can have another one.
1: Well, I mean, she's already got another child.
0: Wouldn't you think that if you'd lost your little girl, you'd want your son around you? Not put him well, to boarding yeah. a boarding school? I always
1: thought that was yeah. a bit off. Yeah, at the start of this movie. Yeah, they move on, and the son's not
0: with them anymore. Maybe they really only like Christine. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: Maybe they do. don't like Johnny at all. What I don't get is why you'd have a bust of your dead kid.
0: So while all this is going on, this kind of kind of exchange between Laura, Wendy, and Heather, uh, it's intercut with John sitting at a pub hmm. and um, getting drunk. This whole sequence where John is coming up to the room seems to decide suddenly to go. It almost It's cut in a way, as a lot of these scenes are, where it feels like Laura and John are reacting to one another, even though they're not in the same physical space. Mm. Heather seems to have made contact with the spiritual realm. And we know this because she's fondling her breasts and making orgasmic sounds which really isn't a Heather thing to do, uh, and it's really weird. It's so weird. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> yeah. It's really bizarre, and it's sort of um, very overtly sexualized.
3: I don't understand why she needs to be following her boobs to get into the afterlife of a kid. It's so strange. But it kind of works in a weird way. There's something a bit
0: horrific about it. You know, this film has one of the other kind of very tiny threads of this film is the idea of old women being horrific. You know, it is. You know, like there's that part later on where the inspector says, isn't it interesting that when women age, they all start to look <laughs> the same. Men become more distinctive, but women all just start to look exactly the same. And then, of course, the, the major time this, this element is used is when we get the reveal of the red-hooded figure. There's this hideous old crone-looking lady. The film seems to have this aversion to old women um, hags, crones, and that's another uh, kind of a cult-type theme. That not was... many people do like hags, though. No, not hags, they're not beloved. Yeah, yeah, they're a far cry from Benedict Cumberbatch who everyone just adores. This is also when Heather gets hysterical, repeating
2: John! Yes, yes! Yes!
0: Yes! Like she's having some sort of psychic fuck with John. John is caught eavesdropping by a man in a red night robe who also lives in this apartment. He thinks he's a peeping Tom and chases him from the apartment. John quickly returns to the pub. He then sees Laura coming out of the apartment, and he meets her, and she says to him, Told you it was all right. I think it's really interesting that John is mistaken for a peeping Tom. mm And again, it's this idea of characters misunderstanding, not having all of the facts, making snap judgments based on limited information. Back at the apartment, Laura describes Heather's trance and that she warned her that John's life was in danger.
2: I really think we have to leave Venice. It was a warning. It was Christine.
0: She was trying to warn us. We get the sense that something terrible is going to happen, but this is the first time it is overtly said that Christine's uh, reappearance in their lives in this way is a warning.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's the first time that there's really this over-exposition of what's going to happen as well. Before that, you are a bit lost, but now they're saying it.
0: Uh, Laura tells him that she wants to leave Venice. This is where John loses his cool and he makes his godless position clear and all of his pent-up anger about this situation is finally expressed.
2: My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the fucking grave. Christine is dead. She is dead. Dead, 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 dead.
0: He admits that he thinks Laura is mentally unstable and that she needs to see a doctor. Laura says all of this and he just agrees. It's it
1: seemed like, almost passive aggressive at first. It is
0: passive aggressive. It's awful because Laura, who's been so convinced, has so much conviction that, you know, everything that she feels about Christine and Heather and Wendy is all true. She suddenly doubts it all because John has admitted now that he highly doubts it. And she admits it's possible she's been conned. She then talks about, I should take my pills again. And John quickly points out where they are and grabs a glass of water. And so she can take one right this instant. And it's really kind of sad how quickly Laura regresses back into the role of grief-stricken mother. It's awful that John is the one that does that because John is the one who so badly wants her to be better. And yet in this scene, he is the one drawing her back, drawing her away from her happiness, away from her relief.
3: But he thinks in the long term that it would be better for her not to go down a fanciful kind of road. Yeah. Does she take the pill?
0: <sighs> no. At the end of the scene, we reveal that she's still got it in her hand. She just kind
3: of acted doing it. That's maybe also why she's being so aggrieved. Because she knows she's not going to do it and that will shut him up for a bit. Yeah.
1: But that's why I think, yeah, she is being passive aggressive about what she she says. These two scenes, the seance doesn't really work for me because of the kind of strange sexual...
0: The breast rubbing. Yeah. Mm. That
1: whole thing doesn't really work for me. But then the subsequent scene in the hotel room is one of the best scenes in the movie, that conversation. His... Performance there is so good. Yeah. Um, Like his line that he says is so good.
0: I'm just imagining how Rogue would have told that actress what he wants her to do. What I'd actually like you to do is sort of grab hold of your breasts and just move them about in a clockwise motion.
3: (laughs) One (laughs) clockwise, one anti clockwise. (laughs) Yes, that's it. You've got it. The weird thing is, is that was improvised. (laughs) I
0: couldn't stop her. She insisted on doing it that way. (laughs) So, okay, we then cut to it's night time. And in the middle of the night, the phone rings and John answers it. The connection is bad before coming good. What is with this bad connection at the beginning of this phone call? Because it's hard for me to believe it's just nothing. A
1: lot of it's about men don't know what's going on. And men are unable to communicate in this movie. And firstly, it's the headmaster who calls up and he's unable to say what's happening. The, the headmaster's wife takes wife the phone. wife takes the phone, and she's able to communicate. So she's communicating to John at that point, yeah. but she's able to get her point across.
0: So they're trying to say that because it's a man, trying to communicate it with a man over the phone, because men are so hopeless at communicating even the connection.
1: In this world. Yeah, I like it. Could just be a shitty line.
0: It could just be <laughs> emphasising that earthly communication is limited and often distorted. So much of, of the film is about the virtue of being able to see beyond the physical and the material. This headmaster, Mr and Mrs Babbage. Babbage. And that's also
1: that's the guy that owns the house, the Baxter's
0: house. Yeah, yeah. at the beginning of the film. He tells uh, John that there's been an accident and that little Johnny has hurt his head. And then we see a quick image of the boy with a giant bulge on his forehead that isn't terribly convincing. Laura gets ready to catch a flight back home as she's getting dressed. Laura tells John that the old woman were right about the warning thinking that Johnny's accident is the reason they shouldn't remain in Venice. And this is the first time that it's misinterpreted. Rookie won't mistake. It's it's later misinterpreted again by John after he has his near miss in the church. Oh, this is what they were talking about. Mm. And it's so true as human beings we do that. We reach for... We, is that the last one? I think so. The
3: rule of threes
0: as well. It? It's good that it's two different characters because if it was one mm. character going, well, this is what they meant, you'd start to think that yeah, character yeah. was a bit of a dim laura calls downstairs uh makes arrangements with the manager for laura to to fly back to england she emerges in the lobby packed and ready to go she asks john to think about taking three weeks off to go home to england he stresses that he can't but he will try to make it up there by the weekend this is where the manager says we are closing film lingers on this goodbye between husband and wife which is a hint that perhaps this is their last goodbye which it kind of is because even though they're together in the end scene they're not really together
1: but they're never in the same place at the same time, yeah. are they?
0: Yeah. And it, I think that it is is—it is kind of a lovely scene and a bit of a haunting scene where we, we watch them slowly separate from one another. It's the first time that we see them really
3: separate. And the camera gets quite subjective as well, like when she goes off on the boat, bits of it are from her perspective and bits of it are from his perspective. Yeah. Like the, they cross cut between them really well. And
0: uh, very typically rogue, it ends with uh, Laura standing up on the boat and looking and you get this sense that, oh, is she going to stay on the boat? Yeah. Now, this, I think, was probably in part done so that when we John sees her on the on the boat hearse that we think, oh, it's possible she disembarked off that boat and went and met with the two women. Typical rogue kind of misdirection. Yeah, he's a rogue one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in just to annoy you. Don't. Okay, so now we we come to the famous accident sequence. It's not really famous, but it feels very, very important.
1: <laughs> it is a big scene. <laughs> It's like, thematically, this is probably the biggest tying together of all of the themes.
0: This scene was actually, um, this was scene was suggested by Alan Scott. I think it must have been, like, when they were looking through a script. And Alan Scott's the script writer. Yeah, and he said, God, the middle's really boring. We need something exciting to happen. And that's why they put this scene in, which is, it's amazing it works so well, mm. given that it was sort of just like an afterthought. It feels so pivotal. Barbara Riggle and John are discussing the restoration, and John tells him that his son was in an accident, and his wife has flown to England to be with him, he seems as if he's about to confide in Barbarigo
2: Laura's had some complications since Christine you should have again
0: Barbara goes brought some mosaics which he wants John to look at John climbs a ladder as he's climbing the ladder we get that sort of transposed shot of Wendy cackling which is another indication that maybe these two women aren't uh,
3: mm. altogether and that, good and that was edited that was added by the editor that was the... and rogue liked it and rogue liked it yeah yeah. Do you think it worked? I could have done without it. Yeah, I thought it was overkill. Yeah. What did you think, then?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It could have been taken out. Yeah. I think the scene's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, like, it's, it's not like the rest of the movie. And I think there's, as I said, there's several points with those two women that don't really fit with the movie for me.
0: Yeah. Also, um, when Barbara Ugo says that about John, at this point, three separate people have told John to get out of Venice. Now, mm. I, I understand he's not superstitious, mm. but come on, mate. Like three people? And also
1: the fact that the bishop, who I guess is his boss on this building site, he's well, certainly someone he has to report to, yeah. Yeah, is the person that he would probably go to to request a few weeks off. Yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah, at he stays. He gives him a perfect opportunity. You should have gone with her. He could have said, oh, I need three weeks to go back to her, mm. to go back to England. And he doesn't.
0: In this scene... John hoists himself onto a suspended scaffold and is comparing the tiles. He's probably about 50 feet above ground. Uh, really it,
1: really well shot. Um, the they, depth they, of Yeah, the shots, especially the shots from above. Yeah. It looks really, so perilous. They show exactly how how perilous it is. How yeah. how much danger, how high he is above the ground. Oh, there's
0: I think there's a great tension in this <laughs> scene. As he, even as he like as he's climbing the ladder, you it's eerie. Yeah. But um, there's something
1: really beautiful about it, the fact that these people
3: used to work in these conditions and get things that were amazing done. It's also interesting that it's like a side of a, I guess, a priest's life in Venice or whatever, like, you don't, you wouldn't expect is part of their job description. Like, and yeah. he talks, talks about, I've got, like, a family member that we've been using for generations or whatever about restoring these churches. I never thought that... Like, to this film, like, that's something priests would have to worry about, is upkeep of a church, yeah, rather yeah. than just getting clientele in. And yeah. some of these churches that would be
1: hundreds and hundreds of years old. Yeah.
0: Okay, when John's up there on this sort of precarious scaffolding, a wooden slat above him gives way. It crashes through at the scaffold's glass window, tips the whole thing sideways. John is left clinging to life by a support beam, while the men around him scramble to help. He manages uh, to, to get freed, uh, to get kind of pulled over. And the men here, uh, all except Bishop Barbarigo, who looks grimly contemplative. Now, John's had three warnings <coughs> and, and a near-death experience, and he's still not going to leave Venice. But this is also, this accident, it j- the reason it feels pivotal in the film is because it is the first time that John starts to consider that Laura and how she feels, that there might be some credibility to the warnings, to psychic hmm. phenomena. This is a, this changes his perspective. A very stubborn man who has this decidedly atheistic perspective is suddenly not completely, but so, kind of starting to contemplate that there might be some truth to that.
3: this it the first time you feel like there's like a a present that's not human? I feel like in terms of um that plank, the way it yeah. hits, it feels like there's a design to it. Yeah, it doesn't feel purely It doesn't doesn't feel like that could be coincidental for some reason.
1: John's fall here involves breaking glass for the third time. Um, Mm. It also appeared in the opening scene when Johnny rode his bike over the glass and um, John spilled a glass of water, and then it reoccurred in the restaurant when Laura fainted, causing glass to go everywhere. And it's the third fall, and there's another reference to falling immediately following the scene. Christine falls into the lake, Laura faints uh, and falls, and here John almost falls. And just after this scene, John talks to the bishop about uh, the bishop's father being
0: killed in a fall.
2: My father was killed in a fall. Yes? Yes.
0: Sutherland apparently uh, had uh, a near-death experience. They had a stunt guy to do the stunt, and the insurance wasn't properly teed up, or he didn't feel it was good enough for his family in the event of his death, so Sutherland was forced to do the stunt himself. (laughs) He was attached to a Kirby wire, which was supposed to keep him suspended 50 feet in the air in case he lost his grip on the scaffold beam. He later discovered the Kirby wire would have been rendered ineffective by how twisted it became during the stunt. So had Sutherland lost his grip, it could have proved fatal. He could have actually fallen. He wasn't actually being... Held up there by
3: anything that was um, mm. reliable. I wonder mm. if these kind of stories just get made up. Like, mm. because he was very it didn't seem like there was any near death experience. Like in his interview on the Criteria, and he just seemed like it was the big thing about it for him was overcoming his vertigo in that thing. Yeah. Nothing to, he doesn't mention like that at all. And I'm not saying it's not the case, but I just I just feel like these are things that like producers or people that are in charge of selling DVDs get on the IMVB trivia page. Yeah. And he does have a history of doing his own stunts. Like, in Body Snatches, he did all of the own st- all of his own stunts running across all the grading at the end mm. and stuff, and it was, like, pretty full-on stuff. Uh, this
0: is the second misinterpretation of that warning. Mm. Um, so Laura first qualifies it with Johnny's injury. John is now qualifying it with the accident at work. Barbara says, I wish I didn't have to believe in prophecy, but I do. And this kind of harks back to the idea of it being a blessing or a curse. The idea that you can tap into the metaphysical. So John and Barbarigo find a crowd as they're walking, gathered along a bridge, and they see that police are dredging a woman's body from the canal. A couple of children let out a shrill laugh as the feet and legs of a a lady break the surface of the water. (laughs) That shrill laughter. In Don't Look Now, almost all of the laughter is menacing. Hmm. No one ever laughs in a joyful way. And the way that the laughter is put in the track, it's so loud, it's chilling. It's it's essentially the same as you know a stab of music in a horror film, when those kids laugh. And it's really gross that there'd be a bunch of kids laughing at that. I mean, who are these kids, Jesus Christ. There's something really naked and unceremonious about this scene for me. The way the men on the boat are handling the woman's body, the wide shots keep it feeling like a community experience we've got all those onlookers, that something's being observed by a curious audience. It's like those people that kind of go to watch the freak shows or people who slow down their cars when they see a car accident. We have this morbid curiosity. The apartment that John and Laura were staying at has now closed. We know that John and Laura had always intended to go to Barbarigo's house on Thursday. We assume now it's Thursday. He grabs a suitcase and um, boards a boat. This is the only time in Look now that we're actually at a real tourist destination, the Grand Canal.
1: I love that in this, just before he leaves the hotel, he's packing up and he squeezes the toothpaste. Oh, yeah. And the toothpaste featured in their sex scene. It was, you know, it was involved at the start of that.
0: And he leaves it there, doesn't he? Yeah, he leaves it there. So on his journey along the Grand Canal, he sees Laura standing in black with Wendy and Heather on what is clearly a kind of floating hearse. Convinced he's seen Laura, he combs the streets and eventually returns to the hotel in case she's there. He speaks to the manager who says he hasn't seen her since she left for the airport that morning and that the hotel is closed and would you please go away, John? He says this while brandishing a comb. Isn't
3: it, isn't it weird? <laughs> that whole scene <laughs> is so strange to me. And, and like, the way, the really sad way in which he goes, we are, yeah. oh, senora, we are closed.
2: we are closed. We are closed. No, <laughs> oh, we are
3: clawing. I know. Like, I don't think he understands what he's saying. I feel like he's been fed an English line, and he's just doing a very. This is where he walks into his office, and he's having sex with
1: someone who works at the hotel. Were they having sex? Because I was. Well, sure they were, were going to do something
0: sexual. What's that threat with the comb? Is he going to like part Sutherland's hair if he doesn't back off? Like, what, what's I going think on he's there? So I like <laughs> the other thing we should say is obviously that scene where John sees Laura and she doesn't respond, he's having a premonition of his own funeral.
1: Yes. Which you know there's something not right there. Because, because Laura would acknowledge that. Well Laura's also dressed in all black, which she never has been throughout the movie. She's always dressed in lighter colours. Yeah. She's
3: very like vacant almost as and well.
1: Yeah. Just been so animated. The two sisters look like they're part of a satanic cult.
3: Yeah.
0: What did she do? Get off the boat and go, I'm going to dress in black and stare poignantly on a boat as yeah. it cruises through the Grand Canal. We know that it's not really there, that something else is happening here. John, though, is completely convinced that Laura is still in Venice and um, he takes a long walk through the Venetian streets looking for her. He finds a naked doll washed up from the canal. Viol- uh, Venice is suddenly a shadowy, very ominous place. The few strangers in this scene look really threatening.
1: Interesting that he pulls that doll out, because the doll is typically a child's toy and usually a little girl's toy as well pulls it out of the water it could also naked.
0: just it for christine's body hmm. i think there's something very kind of primitively sad about hmm. that moment where he gets that doll out so now we meet the inspector john has a sketch made of heather and wendy and takes the photograph of his wife which he would grabbed earlier as he was leaving for barbarigo's place and he takes it all to this inspector who isn't terribly concerned and seems vaguely suspicious of john this is where we get the line
2: Age makes women grow to look uh, more like each other. Don't you find that?
0: He also says to John, "What is it you fear?" And that's when John recounts his story. And this is one of the only examples in *Don't Look Now* where we actually have a a lucid piece of dialogue.
2: Mm. My wife met these two women a couple of days ago, and uh, one of them, the blind one, claimed to have seen Christine, her dead daughter. She said, "Christine was happy. My wife collapsed, and when she came round, she she was totally
1: changed. She was happy. She had come to terms with the death." I love the quote: "The skill of the police artist is to make the living appear dead." But he mm. says, which is really good because I always think that about police sketches. And the detective also played a detective in Suspiria. His name's Renato Scarpa.
0: And he didn't know a word of English, so all of his English mm. lines, he had no idea what he was actually saying. <laughs> he just
1: learned them it. Um, and uh, the, there's a story there that when John walks in, he was supposed to react to John saying something, but he missed his cue because he didn't understand what John was saying because it was in English, and so it c- kind of created this interesting bit where he popped out from behind a plant, and Nicholas Rogue loved it and so left it in.
0: And this inspector is a very dubious character. It's really interesting that he actually sees mm. Heather and Wendy walking down the street and says nothing and does nothing.
3: Do you like the fact that the old women walk past? Do
0: you think you needed that? I think <laughs> they walk past too often in this movie. do yeah, I know. They're popping up like Starbucks. <laughs>
1: just, yeah. They've popped up. This is about the sixth different time that they've been exactly where Donald Sutherland has been. And mm. these are frumpy women. Who Not do... that frumpy. One of them's frumpy. One of them's... <laughs> <laughs> into self-pleasure, as we've also already yeah. seen from a
3: seance. It's got nothing to do with their weight, though. They're kind of uh, put together. They're all dressed like, well. Yeah, but, okay, they're fine. But all I'm saying is, like, these are, like, middle-aged women. Apparently they're putting the miles around Venice.
2: <laughs> like, yeah. They've done, like, 30Ks. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it's but, true. But they're everywhere.
1: <laughs> this is the uh, kind of the first time it brings in, I guess, the serial killer idea, because uh, he asks, "What are you afraid of?" and John
2: says, "A killer on the loose, the murderer. My wife is not a well woman."
3: Until he said that again, like I don't feel like it's been pushed enough yeah. for me to actually feel like he's fearful of this serial killer.
0: Well, we don't even know they're really connected until then.
3: But, after, but I didn't, I had no idea. In, yeah, like. like you know, I mean,
0: like all the the different things we've seen, the murder in the apartment, the mm. water being—we don't know that they're all connected to one criminal. Mm. Until John says, Well, there's a serial killer. John kind of leaves a little bit disparaged by his encounter with the inspector. He's now wandering on foot through the pigeon packed streets of Venice, searching for any trace of his wife.
1: (laughs) The pigeon Pigeon packed. I was hoping I could get away with it. (laughs)
2: Little
0: artistic license there. Um. (laughs) Pigeon packed alliteration. What a beautifully
2: eloquent podcast this is, (laughs) full of vivid imagery. As John
0: is walking through the streets, we see he's being tailed by somebody, and we assume that this is uh, somebody the inspector has put onto him. John sees the figure in the red hood peering from across the river, but the figure darts away. Now, one thing that happened in the inspector's office was that, because obviously John knew where the women lived, because he went... And listened Mm. on the other side of the door. The first time that he walked around, he obviously couldn't find that apartment. He kind of couldn't get his bearings.
1: Well, so does that. happens to the person, the people watching as well, the viewer. Because there's so many different little alleyways and everything. And you've been stuck in this and you don't realise it until just a little bit further on from here. that You've been stuck in this tiny little space throughout Mm. the entire movie.
0: And the inspector says to John, look, go and try and find this apartment because obviously that would (laughs) Mm. help them locate these two women who John believes have taken Laura against her will, kidnapped her essentially. John is able to find the hotel now and he asks the reception about the old women and they take him to the lady's room and he finds it empty. The man who's been tailing him Follows him up to this room and then introduces himself, which was is a little unexpected and odd. And then we get another sudden switch to Wendy and Heather, and they're walking through a new hotel room, <laughs> which they
1: do explain later because of reports of a peeping tom. That's really funny. Oh, that's great. Which, which
0: is John? John. <laughs> that's that's really good. So that again comes to sort of self fulfilling prophecy, doesn't yeah. it? From the idea of fatalism in this film. This walk through Venice is spectacular, and I love the mixture of. Shots, you get handheld shots, you get still shots, you get POV shots, you get these wide shots.
1: It does make you want to go to Venice. (laughs) Mm. Me. I don't think it makes... I can see why people had a problem with it, though. Because it doesn't paint the people or the circumstances... Very nicely. John
0: goes back to see Barbarigo, and while waiting for Barbarigo, he uh, calls Johnny's school back home, and the headmaster's wife hands him to Laura, which completely stuns him. This scene is very interesting how it's cut, because we always see John in a very comfortable close-up facing the camera. Laura, on the other hand, we get these kind of obscure close-ups. Sometimes she's sort of half in the frame, half out. Sometimes then we get a close-up of her mouth. So it gives us the sense that is Laura there or is she not there? Barbara go catches John, who's a little shaken. John says he wants to talk to him, but asks to use the phone first. And that's how the scene ends. And I'm, I was—I couldn't help but think, is that the phone call that he made at the beginning of the scene? But then I think, no, I think the phone call is to the police to say that he's now knows where Laura is. She's in England. And that's when the police would tell him, well, we've arrested Wendy and Heather. You better mm. come down here.
1: This is the shot that I mean where it becomes clear that you've been stuck in this really tiny little place for so long. For me, I really felt it because when he calls up Laura in England, there's a shot of the school children outdoors mm-hmm. and they're all playing. And there's this great open space. Mm. Mm. And even though it only lasts a couple of seconds, you want it to last for longer because you've been trapped.
0: John goes back to the police station where they're holding Heather in connection to Laura's disappearance. John apologises her for the mix-up and escorts her back home. Uh, Laura lands back in Venice. Then we get another night walk through Venice. This time it's John leading Heather back to her new apartment and Heather seems to have totally forgiven him for, you know, implicating her in her kidnapping.
1: She's not fussed that she's sitting in a jail cell, really. Yeah, She takes it quite well. She She knew she was getting out.
2: And then here's where she says... One of the things I love about Venice is that it's so safe
0: for me to walk. Thank you. Mm. What is safe about Venice? It is, I've got all of these staircases. It's got um, paths leading into bodies of water. Not to mention there's a serial killer walking around at night stabbing people with a razor. So, okay, and then she kind of qualifies it with this, I can hear based on the echoes about where I'm
3: walking. Mm. But you know
0: what? If you're walking in a place that doesn't have to have water, there's no need for the echoes to keep you out of falling into a body of water. They
3: say um, they say this is Milton's favorite city. Yeah. And he was a blind. Yes.
0: He um suffered from an eye condition and was blind for the last 20 years of his life. John and Heather make it back to her apartment, they're welcomed by Wendy who offers John a drink. Heather begins to have a seizure and John is quickly sent out of the house by Wendy. Heather begs Wendy to get John back.
2: He's back. Which Please let him not
0: go! The hooded figure is seen scurrying away as John appears from the hotel complex. Wendy finally gets the message and makes a half-hearted attempt to find him. She bumps into Laura and Wendy rushes her into the apartment. Heather implores Laura to find John, but now she is smiling. Laura rushes out in a panic to look for John. So what the hell is Heather's smile about? One moment distraught, yeah. now suddenly it's okay. Once mm. she see her see something shiny on the wall and was like, oh, that's pretty. Oh, maybe she smiled because she sensed Laura's presence and Laura has a good energy.
1: But John's still in danger unless it's too late for John. Unless Laura being back there is a better chance of John's survival, mm. possibly.
0: But then, like Heather starts to be this complete bitch to Laura. She's like looming over her and she's saying,
2: she "When you leave, she told you to leave." You must you
0: know where he went. Leave this. Did he, where did he say he was going? He, he told you. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like that annoying kid at school, who's like, I told you so. You know what I mean? Like, why? What, how is this helpful? Wendy calls out for Laura from the apartment window, but Laura disappears down a dark alley. John is now trying to find the hooded figure, and he sees this red hooded figure boarding a boat, and he goes after this person. At this point, he seems to believe, or he's convinced, that this is Christine. He tries to steal a boat which upsets its owner. Then he sees the figure move further down the street and crosses a bridge in pursuit. Meanwhile, Laura is still looking frantically for John. John follows the figure into what looks like an old monastery with fog swirling around his ankles. I thought
1: the fog was overdone. I don't think it's really in keeping with what's been happening. It's just appeared
3: out of nowhere that there's fog all around him. Do you 100% believe that he thinks it's Christine or just somebody that's in danger?
0: No, well, I think he thinks it's Christine. Yeah, I think so, so. Just because there's a, a sense... he's not—he's not He's not... There's no distress on his face when he says. That, he says it with such conviction and a certainty and a calmness.
1: And I think they both think that it's pristine because there's this scene where Laura goes up to the gates that John's locked behind him, and she shouts out,
2: "Darlings!" Not "darlings."
1: <laughs> She's talking about both of them.
0: Yeah. There's a really poignant moment when she does that. Mm. When he gets to the to, they get to a kind of an impasse and the, the red hooded figure is standing like against a wall, the way a kid would do it time now. out. Mm. And he says, I'm a friend.
3: I won't hurt you. Then if he says, I'm a friend, I won't hurt you, that implies that it's not Christine to me. You need to say, It's dad.
1: Not necessarily. I think if it, mm. I, I did think the same thing, but then if a child is scared. I think that is something that you could say to them, especially if you if enough time had
3: passed that they might not recognise you. And he
0: also doesn't know in what form Christine is now going to be in.
3: Yeah, I'm not. I'm just not convinced he 100 percent believes it's Christine. I think I, I, I don't know. I feel like he's just seeing somebody that reminds him of Christine, and he's worried for their safety because of the. Zero so, do you killer. think
0: that he's still atheistic at this point? No, no,
3: no, I don't, um, not at all. I think there's a pot like a thing that he thinks it could be, but I don't think he just goes, I'm definitely chasing Christine. I think he wants to know what he's chasing, as opposed right. to like, I'm definitely chasing Christine. Because I don't, I, th- I think he'd be like, it's daddy, or he'd say her name.
0: The figure turns and we see that she is a female dwarf with a hideous crone's face.
2: Wait.
0: She stabs John several times in the neck with a razor, and as he bleeds out, uh, and he bleeds out as an extraordinary set of images fill the screen, his life flashing before his eyes with bells clashing over the soundscape. One of the most beautifully composed moments in the film for me. I think those 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 um, bells are so stirring, the way those images all come together, there's something so stirring about it, it feels like the, be- the most beautiful bookend to the film.
1: I think a lot of those images were about the things that have been suggested throughout the movie, but now they all... Trying to tie them together to make some kind of sense about them.
0: And it's John putting them all together, yeah. making sense of so many things that he couldn't... So it's not just you know. life
1: flashing before somebody's eyes. No. It is, this is how I got to
0: this moment. It's a, 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 someone solving a puzzle mm. in the seconds before, like, you know, it's too late now, but yeah. at least he solves it. A,
3: and is it a razor, or is it like a... I thought it was like a cleaver kind of thing. I thought it was a razor. I thought it was a <coughs> little, like, flick knife. I <coughs> do ah. I thought it was big. Maybe it just looked big because of her little hands. I thought it was a gun. If any of our listeners know exactly what it was please post it. So the little truffles was out of bazooka. And... <laughs> okay,
0: so look, um, I really, really have to say, when I first saw the dwarf at the end of the film, I was creeped out. And it's not because I'm creeped out by dwarves. I think that she was particularly done up and made to look Rather hideous and awful. Just a little bit about that dwarf. I have to tell you as about well. About that actress. When when the when the dwarf puts the <laughs> not, not about that dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> when the dwarf puts the razor into his neck, she's taller than him, and he's not down on his knees, and she's not on a platform. It's like a cheat. That's a good
1: point. Does does he not have to go upstairs
0: to mm. get to this place? Maybe he has to go down like on a plateau <sighs> thing. But I I don't not that much not that mm. dramatically. Sutherland's a tall man. <laughs> you'd have to fall halfway down a well to be for that to be accurate but about this dwarf her name's Adelina Perario there's almost no information available about her she was four feet two inches tall rogue found her through a room-based casting company after seeing a photo of her there are some reports that say she sold flowers others that she was a lounge singer at the time of filming uh, rogue says she had recently left her husband for her lover and would sit on his lap on set while she was doing her makeup Rogue thought she was absolutely beautiful. Now, I just also have to say, Julie Christie... Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> but Julie Christie was uncomfortable with the ending, and a lot of people felt that this was sort of a... Yeah, exploitive. And, um, you know, she actually said...
2: I had a problem with the the little woman at the end uh, in the red mac, I I actually thought about... Even it made me worry about doing the film... Because I don't like to see people being made frightened of people who are already disadvantaged.
0: The name of being afraid of dwarves is called achondroplasia phobia. And I got all of this information from a website called fearof.net. And I have to read you some of what they've written on their page about this. So the definition is fear of midgets or little people. The word is derived from the medical term achondroplasia, which is the skeletal disorder of the cartilage, uh, which forms during the fetal stage that causes dwarfism. This is what it says about uh, a The fear of midgets can be debilitating as a person might refuse to go to circuses, casinos, fairs or malls where midgets are likely to be present. <laughs> For many children, the fear of midgets, this is actually what it says on this website. For many children, the fear of midgets starts with an encounter with a dwarf at school who has behaved badly with the child. <laughs> Many adult achondro it actually specifically says with a dwarf janitor
3: at school. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the writer is writing his own blackboard. I can picture it though now. <laughs> Never is said <there> dwarf janitor, <laughs> the i got
0: their a, mop. Yeah, <laughs> I can picture it. So apparently, many, many adult achondroplasia phobic individuals actually believe that dwarves are from other planets or have alien origins. Uh, listed under symptoms. Of a phobia Running or fleeing from midgets Nightmares <laughs> about midgets That's a symptom, running You never would have guessed And suggested treatment Gradual desensitisation therapy Is another method of overcoming this fear
3: Become friends with someone who's just a little bit shorter than you And work down Go up to the dwarf janitor and say hello
0: <laughs> No, no, that would be too much You've got to slowly expose the phobic to midgets in the form of images and movies. This can help one gradually accept them and finally be in their presence without experiencing anxiety attacks. Another interesting little thing about... Apparently Lindsay Lohan has this fear as if she
3: hasn't been beset with enough problems. What did you think of the murder scene?
0: I
1: like it. I think it's a little bit...
3: Anticlimactic?
1: Yeah, anticlimactic, a little bit underwhelming. Yeah. The blood's
3: way too pink. It is. In many mm. 70s films, there seems to be a current... Like, I've, I've seen 60s films where blood looks a lot more real than 70s films. I'm not sure. People talk about like Argento films and say it's supposed to be like an expressionistic thing and all that kind of stuff. I don't get it. I don't know what the expressionistic thing would be. This is the last time
0: that we see red. The last red we see in the yeah. film is John's blood.
3: I just think it's way too pale. It's good watching him shake, like when he's dying. I don't know. I don't feel like yeah. that, I, That's not done enough.
1: Do you like the um, the montage of all those shots that mm. bring it all together? I think that's really good and kind of needs it.
3: I think they're
0: really moving because most of the shots as well are about his relationship with. His wife Laura, and that's really what we're sad about, yeah. is that that connection is now broken.
3: I think that moment with all those memories coming, like coalescing and stuff, it's like it's, I think it's probably one of the best moments of editing in the film. And I think like with the editor, who uh, is Graham Clifford, who worked with Rogue and Man Who Fell to Earth later on and also did the rocky horror picture show Mm -hmm.
0: he did a bunch of films he did a a bunch of stuff yeah Yeah.
3: the idea of editing back in those days that would have to be physical edits Mm. so the amount of cutting that would like and it also gives weight to the idea that like each cut was thought through yeah it was it was planned it was gone okay that you have to like splice the film yeah stick it together Put it on the fucking thing and like watch it go around. Like these days, you could do cross cuts so quickly because it's a couple of clicks on a mouse. Yeah, it's far more tactile. Yeah, and it is, and it's like it's funny because in a a scene like that, again in present day cinema, it would feel cheap. Mm. But in this film, it doesn't because it's been planned. And thought out throughout every kind of scene and it comes and you get that payoff at the end of it yeah. and i feel like it, that's a testament to the editing and obviously the planning and the shooting of the way it's done but editing i think really comes through particularly in this scene I
0: think. yeah the, the precision that has kind of <laughs> been throughout the whole film mm-hmm. you really feel it strongly here it's it's real really masterful those those assembly of images uh, what we come to now is the final scene Laura is seen on the hearse, just as she was in John's vision, with uh, kind of being flagged by Wendy and Heather. And we discover that the funeral that um, John saw on the Grand Canal was actually his own. And she kind of has this tranquil look on her face. Apparently she was originally meant to be veiled, but Rogue decided to um, have the veil off, and to also, instead of have Christy look sad or distraught, to look kind of uh, calm. And because
3: The idea was that he's with Christine now. Yeah,
0: and that nothing now can be taken away from her, that, you know, she knows that they, they exist on another plane and that they can they cannot be taken from her any more than they have been. And, and, that she, that's, and
3: she's single now, in Venice. And
0: she's still got a few years left in that tank. Just quickly, there's yeah. a
1: difference between the um, scene that he saw of his own funeral and the final boat ride, Ooh. which is that
3: their son is there
1: so he wasn't on there the
3: first time the sun means so little to Donald Sutherland that even if he He didn't even go didn't didn't even make it into
1: his like cognition (laughs) fucking thing that's so funny the sun means so little throughout the movie let's be honest It does he doesn't he He doesn't doesn't help help his sister Julie Christie doesn't help Heather off the boat
3: yeah I noticed that too at the end and she walks with such grace still like Heather like she does it and you're kind of like oh okay like she she can see yeah yeah
0: which has been a running kind of theme through the film. Oh. So why don't we talk a little bit about the release of the film and some of the reviews, Damien. I'm particularly interested in Pauline Kale because I love that.
3: Their review isn't that interesting.
0: Oh, don't be stupid, Cameron.
1: I just want to look at how um, Don't Look Now... Got funding, and you kind of have to look at how Rogue was funding his films at the time. His previous movie, Walkabout, is an Australian movie, uh, or at least the content is, and it was produced in Australia, but it was funded by Americans, who'd set up a holding company in Australia. It was produced by American company 20th Century Fox, and written by an English playwright, directed by an English director, and starred mostly English actors. It's regarded as part of the Australian new wave of cinema that started with both Walkabout and Wake in Fright purely because of the content and the location shooting rather than its production history. And likewise for Don't Look Now, Rogue moved offshore for the production. As we've said, it was obviously set in Venice and it was a British and Italian co-production. If anything, though, this was something that helped Rogue, as noted by Paul Newland in his book Don't Look Now, British cinema in the 70s, and he stated that the economic situation of Britain's film industry was tenuous, And therefore it opened up rare opportunities for creative freedom on the part of enterprising and ambitious talents like Rogue. And it's kind of up against the American new wave of cinema when it came out because America's obviously the biggest market for these films. And so a couple of years or five years before this film came out, there'd been this movement to realism and the kind of the sexual revolution and the counterculture Started with Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and those kinds of movies. So it got a pretty good reception in the UK and it did not get a great reception in the US, which was its other major market.
3: Did we ever get box office? No. Did, did anyone, if any of our listeners have an official box office figure for this, I would love to see it because I, I, you read so many mixed reports that, that it did well and then it didn't. Not so well at the cinemas. So, if anyone has that... You can find isolated ones, like
0: how it did in Greece, or how it did in Switzerland. But there was no uh, worldwide gross that I could see. No,
1: No, there wasn't, wasn't. It wasn't released. And it was such a staggered release. It was released in the UK in October. It was released in January in the US in 1974. Peter Bart, who... I guess we've talked about a little bit. He said it performed fairly well. In terms of box office, it was blocked from reaching number one, and we don't know what number it got to, but The Exorcist was out from Christmas 1973, and that was number one for the first six weeks of that year. Funnily enough, the highest grossing film of the year was The Sting, which was released the day before or the day after The Exorcist, and which also never reached number one because of The Exorcist. And The Sting went on to be one of the highest grossing movies of all time, only Gone With the Wind, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and The Sound of Music had grossed more than it to that point. But in terms of critical reception, Roger Ebert gave it a fairly positive review. He rated it 3 out of 4. And of course, he'd later changed that to 4 out of 4. And he did a retrospective analysis, shot-by-shot analysis in his film class. He said, "Uh, The movie is billed as a psychic thriller, and that's fair enough. Its supernatural content it's taken at face value. This isn't a movie like Rosemary's Baby where you can never quite be sure there's not some rational explanation. Almost all of it was shot in Venice, that fantastical city that anticipated the gothic style. And the locations are so much a part to, of that effect that it's impossible to imagine the movie being set anywhere else. The movie was directed by Nicholas Rogue, whose previous credits include the uneven performance and the unsung walkabout. He's a former cinematographer and a genius at filling his frame... With threatening forms and composition, he uses
3: Venice as well as she's ever been used in a movie.
0: The five times she's been used, this is the best.
3: (laughs) I'm sure Venice had been used a lot more than that. Yeah, so Vincent Canby from the New York Times wrote, "Uh, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which opened yesterday at the Sutton Theatre, is a fragile soap bubble of a horror film. It has a shiny surface that reflects all sorts of colours and moods, but after watching it for a while, you realise you're not looking into it, but through it and out the other side. The bubble doesn't burst, it slowly collapses, and you may feel, as I did, that you have been had. Not only do you probably have better things to do, but so, I'm sure, do most of the people connected with the film. These include Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, who play a haunted young English couple, and maybe even Mr. Rogue, the director, who has staged a number of individual, individual sequences with a lot of dash and style, but not enough to, dis- to disguise the emptiness of the screenplay.
0: Goodness gracious. you. Mm-hmm.
1: He did hate it, but he had a really great quote. He said, Don't look now, stops being suspenseful and becomes an elegant, tra- elegant travelogue, travelogue that treats us to second sightseeing in Venice. Which I love. He said second sightseeing. What a delicious pun. It was funny. Molly Haskell wrote a review for The Village Voice. She wrote, Only the dearth of gothic horror movies and the perennial appeal of the death in Venice theme can explain the rave reviews that Don't Look Now has received, both here and in England. It was directed by Nicholas Rogue, who was once, and is always, if his latest film is any indication, a cinematographer. It is a film in which everything seems to have been sacrificed for pictorial effect. Um, so I was able to track down the full review by Pauline Kael, which wow. is pretty rare, Yeah. thanks to the New Yorker's subscription service. Oh my God. I think you can subscribe for a dollar for 12 weeks. So, and, then, and then you have to go through every issue in some Horrible format. You can't search it. It's not available in text. Uh, I think she balances, balances her opinion perfectly. And basically she liked the film I'm calling it trash. And I will be reading out a bit of an extended quote. I would love to read out the whole thing, but I can't. At a mystery level, the movie can still affect the viewer. Even the silliest ghost stories can. Don't Look Now gets fairly mouldy when the hero confronts his red-hooded fate. The non-believer hero destroyed by his refusal, refusal to trust his second sight. The agnostic punished because he refuses to believe in the supernatural. But the picture is the fanciest, most carefully assembled gothic enigma yet put on the screen. It's emblazoned in chic and compared to such gothics as seance on a wet afternoon, it's a masterwork. It's also trash. At the picture's consummation, the perfect, beautiful couple are split by a hideous joke of nature, their own child become a dwarf monstrosity. There's a distasteful clamminess about the picture. Not because Venice is dying, but because Rogue's style is in love with disintegration. A little boy can look at his dead sister with no emotion in his face, but terror and decay are made radiant. Julie Christie is the perfect actress for Rogue because her feelings are so exquisitely modulated and so small. She doesn't project with enough force to disturb the visual surface with rage or pain. Her jagged face so extraordinarily beautiful, yet not adding upright for ordinary beauty, might be the emblem of his style. She gives the picture a soul, but a soul in a body that's trembling on the verge of a nervous breakdown.
0: She always wrote so beautifully about actors.
1: And because it's not readily available, I've put a downloadable PDF of the whole thing in the show notes on our website, so you can access that from celluloidjunkies.com right now.
0: Look, I think it's a challenging film. It's the kind of film that is going... It's not going to be embraced immediately. It's too odd. It's too unusual.
1: Well, just in Roger Ebert's review, I thought it was... (laughs) Interesting that he said this isn't a movie like Rosemary's Baby Where you can never quite be sure there's not some rational explanation He said it's supernatural content is taken at face value I'm not sure if he's saying that this is You can be sure that you can't take it at face value or
0: I think he's saying that it's absolutely You're absolutely sure that this film There are supernatural elements at Mm. play I agree with that to a point, although really most of what's happening in the supernatural has to do with the non-linear format. You don't necessarily have to put that down to, oh, it's definitely something supernatural is happening to these characters. It could just be that editing is playing tricks on the viewer.
3: And I don't 100% agree with the fact that you are convinced in Rosemary's Baby that it's 100% possibility of the truth. Well, certainly not by the end. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, by the end, especially that, you know...
0: You... And the fact that they're all in there and they all openly admit that they're worshipping Satan, the film doesn't, ha- doesn't play on two levels by then. Ebert's full of shit. And look, Ebert initially didn't like the film and then because popular opinion turned so positively to this film he reassessed re- his own opinion and I, got I
3: just think that's... It.
0: He gave it three
3: four out, out, four. out
1: of
0: four. So he's not that negative. But now he gives it four out of four.
1: Well, yes. When? Do, when
3: is there a time in that you saw that People started reevaluating it. Like, what sort of era would it have been? I wonder. It was a good twenty years. I yeah, so, it was like probably the early nineties. I'd say. Yeah. yeah, has been reappraised, and now it's seen as
1: one of the best examples of not only British cinema but also horror cinema and the cinema of grief.
0: And you know, but, horror films that are great—they always take time to be acknowledged as such.
1: Yeah, but I don't think this is just a horror movie. This is a drama. This is a horror. This is a movie about grief and about a couple and about coming to terms with the death
0: of a child. The Rogue's films always uh, kind of defy
3: standard mm. genres. Oh, it's all of his films. Do you want to talk about some of the awards that it got?
0: It
1: didn't get a lot of awards at the time. I
3: know it won the, the I know Anthony, BAFTA. Yeah, Anthony B. Richmond won the BAFTA for Best Cinematography. Mm. Um, he went on to do The Man Who Fell to Earth with Nick Rogue, Bad Timing did The Indian Runner, he did Candyman, which may feature later on mm. in one of our podcasts, I'm sure, might get suggested anyway. He did Legally Blonde. He did, yeah, he did The Sandlot, which is a Classic. personal favourite of mine. Ball he did movie. Ravenous, which is a film, when I've heard this, I'm like, I need to watch that again. Ravenous that's is, that's yeah, really, really good, good. Yeah, did uh, The Sweetest Thing.
1: Uh, it was also nominated for BAFTA for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, Soundtrack and Editing. So it was well received in the UK and it was nominated (laughs) for Best Picture at the Edgar Allan Poe Awards Since it has been reappraised it's ranked 127th Best Film of All Time by Sight & Sound Magazine 91st on Sight & Sound's Directors Top 100 8th on a list of the Top 100 British Films done by the British Film Institute in 1999 1st on a list done in 2011 by Time Out about the Best (laughs) British Films And 12th on another list by Time Out the following year, ranking the top horror films. The Guardian and Observer Newspapers Film Critics ranked it the third best horror film of all time in 2013 behind Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. And it's rated 96% on Rotten Tomatoes from 50 reviews. And the two Rotten Reviews were one from Vincent Canby and one in Spanish that I couldn't read, but it actually rated it 3 out of 5 stars. (laughs) Ah, right o So when it was released in the UK, it was released as part of a double bill Mm. in October 1973. With
0: another film that we all love.
1: The Wicker Man. Where is Rowan Morrison? And this is just... Oh, I wish I was there. Yeah. To go to that That double double feature. The Wicker Man... For me, I rated it my ninth best horror film of all time on Letterboxd.
0: It's so interesting as well how many similarities there are between mm. those two films, how many parallels, because you've got the atheistic man coming into a uh, like paganist type society that completely believes in the supernatural. You have a, ending, a sense of fatalism, the fact that it ends with the death of a man, both films do. It's crazy. Yeah. And that they're both really odd and the kinds of films that needed a little bit of time before we understood just, you know, exactly how wonderful they were. Well,
1: also the main character in both movies goes through the whole movie not being certain of anything. Yeah. Especially in The Wicker Man. Yeah. Um, And there is, I mean, the the other similarities are the the ending, as you say, uh, that confused state or dreamlike state. And also there's this British heritage in the way that the movie was made and it was a british production and it's combined with this mainland uh, this mainland european openness to sex yeah and don't look now has some of that the wicker man has far
0: more of it both films kind of push the envelope with sexuality and and like um associating sexuality with horror it's a very interesting thing that's rarely done in film, and it's done in both of those films.
1: I mean, if we're doing this podcast long enough, that's a movie that will definitely get done. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I'd love to talk
0: about well, it. i now
3: that we've just spoiled the ending as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, she'll wait to see that one, folks. Hariz, I recorded him reacting to Don't Look Now. Okay, so I just wanted to get your thoughts because we've totally goofed out and nerded out on this film. And I just thought it might be nice to put in because I think a lot of people will feel this way about Don't Look Now. I didn't like it. Not one bit. Why? I think it was one of the worst made films in... Worst made? Worst made films. Really? <laughs> it was all over the place. It was confusing. It didn't make sense. And hmm. I think a lot of people can agree with me on this one. Maybe it just gets you confused. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> a lot of people love this film. It's a classic in <laughs> horror cinema. It's considered one of the best British films ever made. Um, okay. So, yeah, we're a... Uh... Bless his socks. Oh, look, we're a good match. It mm-hmm. makes perfect sense in a senseless world.
1: Can we just um, quickly go over the Academy Awards? So, the Best Picture nominees in 1973 were... Francis Ford Coppola's American Graffiti, Bergman's Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, and The Sting, and A Touch of Class. Most of you should know all of those movies. The one I wasn't familiar with was A Touch of Class, which is a romantic comedy starring George Segal and Glenda Jackson, and she won Best Actress for it. And
3: American Graffiti is directed by George Lucas. Did I,
1: put Cop- I put Coppola. But Coppola might have produced it. That right. might
3: be why it's under Best Picture, because producers get listed.
1: So The Sting won Best Picture and that wasn't unexpected because it had great critical reception and it was the highest grossing movie of the year.
0: I've not seen The Sting.
1: <clears throat> I've seen it once.
0: Was
3: it good? It's all right.
1: So is there any movie in there that you have seen that you would replace Don't Look Now
0: with? The Sting.
3: <laughs> you didn't like The Sting? No. i, um, I don't I seen think... a lot of those. Oh, I haven't seen three of those films.
0: I don't think Don't Look Now is as good as The Exorcist.
1: Yeah. And I have seen The Sting and it is great. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to place Don't Look Now in there. Yeah, Especially because there were so many other big movies that came out that year that also didn't get nominated Papillon, The Way We Were, Last Tango in Paris, Paper Moon, Day for Night, Badlands, Day of the Jackal, The Last Detail, The Long Goodbye, Mean Streets, Scene right. from a Marriage, Serpico, Sisters, and The Wicked Man.
0: See, there's a lot more that I would put in, but I don't think I'd necessarily put in. Don't look now. Yeah. Don't look now as well. Feels like a niche film. Mm. It doesn't feel like it's a, a central mainstream film. So that
3: list of films that you've read out in the 70s in one year is better than everything. That's everything been created. in the last decad- <laughs> like decade, maybe. Yeah. Like, like that, you know, um... you wouldn't be able
0: to pull a list as good from the last 20 years. No.
1: Well, I agree. Oh, I wouldn't put Don't Look Now in there. I think Don't Look Now is Awesome, but I wouldn't put it in that. I don't know. There are some other
0: films there. Alright, well, uh, can I do the quiz now? Okay, so who wants to go first with the first question? Oh, Cameron can go first. Alright, Cameron. Here we go. Got a nice one for you here. What is the English translation of the film's alternate title in Germany?
1: (laughs) I'm glad Cameron went first.
0: (laughs)
3: Um, no idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: really bad. It's... When Gondolas Wear Grief. Oh, okay. (laughs) And um, the Italy uh, release Um, was In Venice, A
3: Shocking Red December. See, that's pretty good. I like that. That's a good tagline. Why December? Shocking Red December, I don't mind for like a Christmas horror film. Maybe it was released in December. But there's no mention
0: of Christmas in Don't Look Now. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, uh, Damien. True or false, Don't Look Now was adapted as a musical production in England in 2007.
1: Uh, I know it's a stage play I don't know if that stage play is a musical But I'm going to say true
0: False, you were right It was adapted as a radio adaptation And a stage play in 2007 It was not right. so so a musical So let's just
3: reinstate for our viewers That <sighs> on a 50-50 question I <laughs> got it wrong <laughs> my, my question, I had to know German Let's just Let's swing it back in my favour Give me a true false Okay Cameron You don't have a true false do you? No No
0: what film was Sutherland's son Kiefer tormented by a child wearing a red coat? That's so
1: bloody easy. I, I hope I get to answer it.
0: I'm doing the thinking
2: music.
0: Uh. I do know
3: this is going to shit me off so much. <laughs> We're still here. Yeah. <laughs> I just played <laughs> <laughs> Nah. Flatliners Fuck I was going to Fucking say that <laughs> Well why didn't you because Why I'm... did
1: you just say No
0: <laughs> What year was the film Given a limited re-release In cinemas 2006
1: 2001
0: oh. God you're both Fucking terrible today
3: oh. It's been easy When you write the questions <laughs> You're getting the quiz Next time
0: <laughs> Okay Cameron yeah. What famous Roger Corman film, released in 1964, was Nicholas Rogue cinematographer on? Um, Man,
3: oh. you can't look at what your this question. <laughs> I can't remember, but I yeah, okay. Damien, Mask of the Red, Red Death. Death. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a
1: brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, Damien, we should do that one. Equal
0: points there. <laughs> What Cronenberg film, we know that Cronenberg loves Don't Look Now, mm. is considered to be directly inspired by Don't Look Now. Is
1: this like the final question? Oh, I don't yeah. know Like, if I get this question correct, do I win? Well, so
0: far you're on one.
1: <sighs> That'd be the brood.
0: <gasps> two for Damien, <laughs> zero for poor little Luther Cameron.
3: Okay. Next, next podcast, we're going to come up with our own trivia questions for Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to have to learn Swahili. <laughs> I like Luke's questions. I've won two in a row.
0: Okay, um, just quickly, we need to uh, mention this. So uh, in April of 2015, a series of news articles came out that Studio Canal was looking at remaking mm. this film, mm. and Donald Sutherland, while he was doing promotion for one of the Hunger Games movies, said, don't embarrass yourself by making it. What's interesting is that it's gone very quiet since then, and I'm, hopefully it stays quiet. I can't think of a more ridiculous idea. What
1: you would already- you be remaking? Do you know what's weird is Done that now. Jaws, Jaws has never been remade. Yeah, and Jaws, you know, it's a pretty simple story that you could adapt into anything. Mm. And Don't Look Now is
3: probably, if it got released now, still not going to find a market. It's so of its time as well. Like you wouldn't get lost in Venice. You would and have a I mean, so life. <laughs> I mean, so much of it is so
0: much of it is technique. I mean, the, you yeah. know, the story of Don't Look Now is really kind of superfluous. It's the technique and the mood and the tone, and that's mm. all purely rogue. You can just see that they'll make a dog's breakfast of it, because they'll try to make a linear, structured remake that's for broad consumption, and it will be a total fucking mess.
1: But we are in the age of remakes and, <laughs> you know, things that are a sure thing. And I just don't know how anyone could look at Don't Look Now and say, that's yeah. going to make us
3: money. It's did yeah. I mean, we don't know because there's no proper box office figure or whatever, but like, we don't even know if it made a ton of money back then. It, it yeah. seems ridiculous. <clears throat> I don't. I can't imagine the world is that tapped.
0: So look, if anyone from Hollywood with any clout is listening to this podcast, we don't fucking want a remake of Don't Look Now, so fuck off.
3: Out of five, Don't Look Now. I give it a solid four stars.
0: Woohoo! I went four too. Damien? Yeah, i go four and a half.
1: Okay,
3: nice. Mm. I originally yeah. went four and a half on my letterbox, so letterbox viewers notice there is there is a discrepancy. Yeah. Just like was Roger I... Ebert. But I take it a... <laughs> constantly
0: <laughs> reassessing.
3: Here we
1: go. Let's go over the
0: films again. Okay, please, yes.
1: Have you actually made a choice?
0: Um, I will. I think I have.
1: Okay, so James Foley's 1992 adaptation of David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross, Stanley Kubrick's 1975 period drama Barry Lyndon, Peter Weir's 1993 drama, Fearless, and Alan J. Pecula's 1974 political thriller, The Parallax View.
0: Well, um, okay, I'm going to go with, it's really hard. Yeah, I know. They're really good choices, all four of them, and I've seen them all. Let's go, Fearless.
3: I state now I've not seen Fearless, so this will be a virgin viewing for me. Yeah, okay. Let's
0: hope he likes it. Otherwise, it'll be a very interesting podcast next month.
3: Yeah, well, it
1: could be the first one
3: that we disagree on. Also, we all want to say thank you for tuning into our inaugural podcast. We were very
0: heartened by how many people bothered to listen to us crap on for two hours.
3: Hmm, yes. Thank you as well for the
1: great feedback from our first episode. We read and reply to all messages and comments, so feel free to get in touch with us. We have great fun bringing you these podcasts, and if you have fun listening to them, please check us out on the web. Our website is located at www.celluloidjunkies.com and includes all episodes, plus the extensive show notes for each episode. You You can subscribe to our podcast through the iTunes Store or via Apple's Podcasts app or using your preferred podcast app on Android phones. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review it in the iTunes Store. Finally, you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, or by searching for Celluloid Junkies and on Twitter at twitter.com slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us directly, simply email hello at celluloidjunkies.com or message us on Facebook. Thank
2: you very
0: much. See you guys.
2: I saw it the other night again for the first time for many, many years and it really, really holds up. A lot of movies it just don't hold up, but it really holds up. And there's some other great British movies but I mean this one really stands out and I think it's a I would say it's Nick's sort of masterpiece myself I really, I really would and it's a, it's a great honour to do that movie It'll probably be around a lot longer than me